Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L. On Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. to be here. Uh, you're truly Frank Morano, and uh, what a show we have for you for the next four hours. By the way, I want to welcome aboard all of our uh, many new listeners listening on uh, WCCO in Minneapolis. This is an, a great radio station in a great city. Uh, not only is it a station with a great signal, one of the best in all of the Midwest, 50,000 watts, especially impressive at night, uh, but uh, it has an incredible, incredible history, and we are honored to be on uh, WCCO in Minneapolis. So a big thank you to everyone that is listening to us out there in the Midwest. want to uh, kick things off uh, with by checking in with a veteran broadcast journalist, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, and uh, one of the most astute observers of news that there is, a veteran broadcast journalist and a radio talk show host at WABC in New York, Dominic Carter. Dominic, what's the story, my man? Hey, good morning to you, Frank, and congratulations on the latest of uh, stations that you are on, uh, clearly a national show, and you're only growing. You know, I'm, I'm just really pissed off this morning, Frank, to be honest with you. Not about you and the food and the refrigerator. We can get to that. <laughs> but but I, I'm pissed off about, I'm sure it, it, across America, people have seen the video out of New York where those two police officers viciously attacked by this mob of uh, migrants, and then they were let go. They're not even in jail, and they were kicking kicking these police officers in, in the head. Hey, Frank, I, I just looked at my Twitter, my ex, there's a, a tweet from a gentleman by the name of DMS, and he says, quote, the mob treated the officers as though they were of a different gang, mm. not like the authority figures they are. Now, you've seen the video. You explain it to me. And Frank, you know, you, you're the smart guy. Tell me, how did our country get to this point where migrants feel emboldened, empowered to beat up police officers. And then when you're let out of, let out of jail a few hours later, you give the bird 
with both fingers to photographers? I, I think it's crazy. You know, I mean, uh, the person that really spoke for me was uh, my congresswoman, Nicole Maliotakis, who said, you know, these people ought to be uh, deported right away. I mean, to me, there's very little... Very little case to be made that these folks ought to be entitled to the hospitality of the U.S. government. And I don't care what their country of origin is, but if you're going to do something like uh, be so egregious that you're going to attack a, a police officer like this, to me, that's, uh, you know, go directly to jail, go directly to your home country, do not pass go, do not collect $200. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, Frank, I'm also trying to figure out what happened to ICE? They, the federal agency to deal with this, they used to be so effective at doing their job, and then they became the punching bag of the left with the uh, political movement. And now, I mean, is ICE? I know they're still around, but it seems like ICE is not even even around anymore. Well, you know, I, I think this goes hand in hand with the sanctuary city policies that a lot of these cities have instituted where they've made very clear that not only are they not going to cooperate with national law enforcement, including ICE, but they're going to be outright hostile to ICE. So I'm not saying that uh, the reason that these police officers was atta were attacked was because of the sanctuary city policy, but I do think maybe the fact that ICE is a little less... I don't know, quick on the draw, for lack of a better description, to go in and do what ICE always has done is because of the sanctuary city policy in some of these places. You know, Frank Morano, I'm really pissed off at you this morning. <laughs> I really am. And, and you know why? Because you're, you're, you're about to do a regular, right? So you're about to kick me off. And that, that's okay. But I'm going to be up half the night listening to your show with all of these great elements you have coming up. Well, I appreciate that. And um, we are kicking things off in Minnesota today. So we're going to talk in about 15 minutes with uh, Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, who's uh, not only a Minnesota institution, but he's been kind of under fire for uh, some of his political views. And a lot of people have questions about uh, what his position is based on the 2020 election, how that's affected his pillow business. We're going to get into that. Also, the uh, Oscar nominations are out. We're going to get into uh, the Oscar nominations with Debbie Schlussel, who always finds a, a political uh, look to uh, some of these films. We're going to get into that. Uh, and then, you know, I, I read this very interesting book about uh, Charles Dickens, who obviously wrote A Christmas Carol, a bunch of other books as well. And uh, uh, there's this fascinating book by Helena Kelly where she's got a new look at Charles Dickens. We're going to get into that a little bit later. And then uh, our colleague Brian Kilmeade will join us uh, towards the end of the program to give us his view on uh, on what's in the news, including the presidential race. You know, a lot of folks talking about this presidential race. We're going into Nevada, going into South Carolina, and uh, a lot of folks kind of uh, are of the view that this election is over, that Nikki Haley should bow out, at least on the Republican end of things. How do you view it, uh, Dominic? Do you think Haley should, uh, should kind of throw in her... Uh, you know, throw in her two cents and, and you know, done. Frank, I'm I'm a straight shooter. I call them the way that I see them, and I I have a pretty good track record of assessing these things. Frankly speaking, there was never a Republican primary. I know on paper and and in terms of the voting, you know, in terms of Iowa and New Hampshire and coming up soon, Nevada and South Carolina, her home state, where she's trailing by almost, what, 25, 30 points to Trump. It's over. 
it's going in terms of the Republican primary, it's going to be a Biden Trump rematch. And right now, all of my money goes on Trump. I just feel that he has all the momentum going with him. But you know, Frank, I, I, again, see, you just got off of my point that I'm pissed off at you. I'm coming back to that because <laughs> I'm not going to get any sleep listening to this great show that you're about to do. And here's what I mean, Frank. You started out the week, right? And I, my last question I want to ask you is how do you come up with these topics? Because you started out the week talking about stamps. You did a segment with a guest <laughs> on stamps, and I found it fascinating, really fascinating. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, uh, you know, I, uh, I still send a lot of letters. Do you, do you ever send uh, actual physical mail these days, Dominic? Because o- when I- only, only when necessary <laughs> and, uh, and perhaps only certified. And, and that's often not a good thing when you have to send a certified oh, I, letter. I get it, my friend. I get it. But uh, to me, I, I think there's something very charming about, uh, uh, about sending a, a good old-fashioned letter these days. And most people don't do it. And uh, I, I uh, you know, when you're going to raise the price of the stamp from 66 Six cents to sixty-eight cents. Look, it's only two cents. Not the biggest deal in the world, but it is. Uh, it is annoying. So I stocked up on my forever stamps before that uh, that postage uh, price increase. Smart. So I have a few for you. So uh, well, tomorrow I'll bring Smart. in a few for you, and we'll we'll trade. Smart. We'll trade. Smart. Thank you, my friend, and, and I'm looking forward to this morning's show. Thank you, my brother. I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you. The great Dominic Carter. If uh, you're not in the New York area, you can listen to him every day from uh, midnight to 1 Eastern. Listen on uh, WABCradio.com. Uh, there is nobody who is more insightful when it comes to national politics, local politics, especially uh, these days with a lot of crimes, crime issues than, than he is. I wanted to bring this to your attention. Speaking of crime, to me, this was a very disappointing story. And and I'm putting it very, very mildly. You know, uh, do you go to Starbucks ever? I'm not a Starbucks guy. I like the local coffee shops. I like diners. I'm not a, a chain person. But my dad is. My dad goes to Starbucks all the time. My wife, too. My wife, Starbucks, Starbucks, Starbucks. Whatever it is about Starbucks, the people that love Starbucks love Starbucks. And to me, I, you know, I've been to Starbucks and it's okay. Uh, To me, the coffee tastes burnt. And even if it's, you know, at a regular temperature, you, you drink some of it, it just tastes burnt. The one Starbucks drink that I can deal with, I like the Cafe Americana, which is basically an, an, an espresso uh, drink with water, as I understand it. Other than that, you can have it. I, I don't like the whole Starbucks culture. I don't like the people that, uh, that go there and hang out there all day long. I don't like the way the coffee tastes. I don't like that it's taken over the world. I don't like that it's putting small-scale coffee shops out of business. However... There is someone that I consider to be a model Starbucks employee, and he is now out of work. His name is Michael Harris. Former Starbucks employee Michael Harris was terminated. He was fired after he and his co-worker um, prevented... The Starbucks location at 2112 South Grand Boulevard from being robbed. Harris and Devin Jones Ransom fought back against the robbers. 
when one of the robbers struck a patron over the head with his gun, it cracked and they realized that the gun was fake. So this was a case, one of several legal issues taken up by St. Louis on the Air's legal roundtable. And to me, this man absolutely should not have been fired. And yet he was. And so now this gentleman, who I think was pretty close to a model employee, is suing because he was fired. To me, I don't understand for the life of me how Starbucks, an entity, a corporation, a company that should be thanking this guy, is firing him. And here we are. So this uh, former Starbucks employee was terminated from his job. And in a press release, the law, uh, the law firm that's representing this gentleman, Mr. Harris, says that he was wrongfully terminated after stopping a robbery at a St. Louis, Missouri Starbucks location on December 17th. The firm said that two gunmen entered the coffee shop and began robbing customers. And Harris told the local NBC affiliate, I thought I was going to die that day. They walked in and announced that it was a robbery. So the press release from the law firm said that Harris complied with Starbucks handbook rules, which recommended employees not engage in robbery incidents at the store. So he complied. He complied with the robber's demands until it was no longer an option for himself and others. Simple as that. He was doing the right thing. And then when the two men demanded cash from the register, Harris said that he tried to comply with their demands, but he didn't have the proper managerial clearance to gain access to the computer register. So because he took too long, one of the thieves pistol whipped him. So one of Harris's co-workers noticed that when he was pistol whipped, that portion of the weapon broke off and they concluded the gun was fake. That's when they noticed and started to fight back. So the guy gets beaten with a fake gun. The gun breaks. They see it's a fake gun and they say, oh, these guys aren't real robbers with real guns. Well, they're real robbers, but they're not with real guns. We're going to fight back. So after a fight ensued, one of the men ran off and Harris and his co-worker, Devin Jones Ransom, were able to restrain the other guy until police arrived. But weeks after the incident, Harris said he got a call saying he was being fired. Out of the blue, Michael Harris and Devin, the other co-worker, were fired from the company without explanation as to what, if any policy was violated or what they should have done differently. We don't know. They never told them. Now, again, we only have Mr. Harris's version of events. Starbucks, when they've been asked about it by other media organizations, they haven't really uh, commented. To me, this is crazy. Not only should they be giving this guy a bonus, they should give him three weeks paid vacation. And yet he was fired. And he's got a suit. I don't understand the world in which we're living in. And again, maybe it's because I'm not a Starbucks guy. I don't get the Starbucks culture. Maybe some of you that go to Starbucks can fill me in. 800-848-9222. As far as I'm concerned, this is not the kind of person that should be fired and need to retain an attorney to get his job back or get some sort of compensation here. But I think this is just awful.
Awful. Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, big shout out again to the good folks at uh, WCCO in Minneapolis. Uh, We're going to talk all things Minnesota and all things pillow with Mike Lindell of MyPillow coming up in about 10 minutes. 800-848-9222. Let me begin by saying hello to Bobby on Long Island. Hi, Bobby. Hey, how you doing? I would venture to say I am doing pretty well. So I read that Starbucks article, but I didn't hear all the details. Um, you had a few more details. For, I read when it first came out. Sounds like he did a great job. That's that's ridiculous. How does that guy get fired, Bobby? I mean, I mean, uh, really, I honestly, I, I'm I'm talking about you. You take the most charitable view from Starbucks's perspective. Um, how does this guy get fired? Nine out of ten of Starbucks employees probably uh, would not have the courage. They'd be you know, handed over all the cash, hide behind the counter. They should they should give a promotion. Uh, agreed, agreed. Uh, I, I think it's absolutely insane. But crazy, crazy, crazy. I was going to mention on the uh, migrants attacking the police in New York City. I wanted to ask: so is that Alvin Bragg, who is the one who makes the decision to uh, release them with Nobel? You know, that's a good question. Um, so there, there's a state law specifying what crimes you're eligible to get bail for. And so uh, supposedly both the prosecutor and the judge is supposed to adhere to whatever is prescribed by state law. I don't know what crime these uh, these people that attack the police officer will ultimately charge with. I don't know if it was a bail eligible offense. And, you know, shame on me for not knowing that. But um, it, you yes, usually it's the prosecutor that has to make the decision to charge them with a crime that's a bail eligible offense. If they make the decision not to bring a charge that has a bail eligible uh, a bail eligibility, then then the rest of it is academic. I don't know um, I don't know what these folks were charged with. I would think though that a violent crime of the nature of assaulting a police officer, I would think that that certainly is bail eligible. I, I can't imagine how they would uh, let these folks out within a day. Yeah. One thing I think is going to happen, because uh, a lot of community complaints are coming in, these migrants, some of them are driving on these scooters, you know, not following the rules and whatnot. I think the cops are going to come down real hard on them. You know, I, I tend to think you're right, but the the one thing that we've been covering, uh, not just in New York but around the country, is a lot of police officers are under a level of scrutiny that they've never been under before. And a lot of police officers, including uh, police officers that I'm friends with, they're terrified of getting indicted themselves or losing their pension or getting a CCRB complaint. They're terrified to do anything that could be perceived as at all being adversarial to the folks that they're arresting. So I would agree with you under normal circumstances. I'm just not sure we're living under normal circumstances. 800-848-9222. Chris is in New Jersey. Hi, Chris. How you doing, Vinny? You do an amazing show, really. I just want to say that first. Thank you. Um, it is you know frank. what I what, what I feel about this incident. It's it's a you know it's a germ of a much bigger issue to me. And what's happening in this country is you know okay. our country was found on independent you know freedom, individual freedom. You know Who's to go Vinny? and do what you want and make your way. 
And what's happening is, you know, this victim mentality of, you know, I'm Vinny owed Madunio? and you need to give me and I need to take. And, you know, it's like this right to do I that. So these robbers, I'm saying, they, you know, they feel this right to just go in this place and do that. Or the CVSs, you know, and now there's law about, you know, oh, if it's under a thousand, that's OK. Meanwhile, they go at 20, 30 at a time and they all take under a thousand. And they're, you know, and the, and our you know, law, you know, especially Alvin Bragg and stuff, they're not, you know, doing anything about this. They're almost, they're almost encouraging it. So I just feel the spirit of America is about individual freedom and people going out and it's made from individuals, all the innovations, all the technology, everything we've done for humanity is from individuals going out and doing that. And now I feel like it's, we're not teaching our history and the greatness of what that means. And, you know, people are just want things. They just want handouts. They think they're owed handouts. Um, and I just, you know, I'm, I, don't, I don't believe it. So I think that this story I'm saying is just one of the things that are symbolic of what's happening. So that was my two uh, cents I, I agree with you, Chris. Thank you. I mean, uh, give, give our best to Vinny, whoever that uh, person is. But I appreciate the call very much. And uh, I tend to agree with everything you said. Mike Lindell coming up in about five minutes. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Devin is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, Devin. Hey, good morning, Frank. Hey, listen, I was uh, driving home and hear Dominic talking about that thing, man. And I go and check it out, man. Let me tell you something, man. This is one time I think the police should use his weapon, man. This thing is disgusting. It is disgusting. And I do not know pertaining Eric Adams and all these people and whatever, man. But it's disgusting. And believe me, I'm a Jamaican. And I'm telling you, it's disgusting. This is not good. Devin, this I is bad. I agree with you. Look, I'm not going to comment about uh, whether or not police should be more aggressive in using their weapons, but uh, you could certainly understand that uh, that mentality. But I agree with you. There's no excuse for this, as far as I'm concerned. 800-848-9222. Frankie is in Highlands. Hello, Frankie. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, it's despicable. What is being prepared is a revolution, a revolution that will supersede all of the despicable things that are going on. Um, the NBAA uh, is assuring that profiteering for military uh, is protected, these lobbyists. Um, there's uh, yeah, these police who, who, who join the forces to, to, to bring peace and maintain peace are being, uh, are being challenged uh, uh, like no one in America mm -hmm. uh, uh, wants. Um, uh, uh, this, this, uh, we can't wait for Trump. We can't wait for 2025 election. We have to do this now. The escalation of violence, of despicable violence, is out of hand. And so the voice of humanity must take over. It's over 80% of us. And we're preparing to come out with this voice that says, stop it. Stop the violence. Stop the aggressive violence. And we're going to be able to 
pluck out the despicable without harming the innocent and becoming or Thank you. becoming the despicable. Thank you, Frankie. Right, we're going to have to end it there. Uh, we got Mike Lindell waiting in the wings, uh, the uh, CEO and founder of My Pillow. We're going to get into that and a whole lot more in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. According to Duran Duran, this is a uh, birthday bumper music selection from my friend Mike Wolf, one of uh, my oldest friends and a great guy and someone who is uh, celebrating his birthday today. And uh, like so many New Yorkers, he made the, the, the move from the New York area to Florida, where he's apparently enjoying it very much. Uh, we certainly miss him in the New York area, but uh, happy birthday to you, Mike Wolf. Hey, speaking of Mike's, I want to welcome to the program. This is our uh, first full show airing on uh, WCCO in Minneapolis, a 50,000-watt flamethrower, which uh, lights up the Midwest. And uh, when you're thinking of Minnesota, there's, to me, one person that immediately springs to mind. That is my friend, a guy that's a real innovator, the guy, a guy that has one of the most fascinating life stories ever, and that is a man who's not only a best-selling author, man who's become very well-known as a political activist these days, but a guy who is uh, the founder and CEO of MyPillow, my friend Mike Lindell. Mike, it's great to talk to you again. How you been? I've been great. Thanks for having me on, Frank. Mike, uh, a lot I want to get into you, uh, w- w- get into with you in a, in a sh- relatively short amount of time. But this might be the first time a lot of folks are hearing you and your story. Obviously, everybody knows who you are from the commercials and so on and so forth. But I read your book. The book is fascinating. I knew some of the stories that you talked about in your book even before that. You were not long ago. A crack addict. How did you make the transition from being a crack addict to being the inventor of one of the most successful consumer sleeping products of all time? Well, you got to go back to, um, um, I was very much uh, 
from the early or late late seventies and early eighties, a, a very functioning addict. I think people look at addiction and they go, "Well, that's just people in the streets that are, are homeless or whatever." And uh, um, but that's not true. It's uh, you know, if I had a very very successful businesses and I raised a family twenty years, we have four kids, and uh, it doesn't matter how many forks you eat with, addiction mm. can affect anyone and. And uh, so you got into it, which cocaine got through. I owned a bar for 13 years, so it was very, probably not a good place for an addict. But uh, um, we, uh, we, uh, I was into cocaine. That switched to crack cocaine in the, right around the year 2000. And um, I ended up selling the bar in 2003. And then I invented my pillow in 2004. And so... In 2004, I was turned down. I took a year to invent the pillow. I was turned down at all the box stores. That's come full circle, by the way. Um, <laughs> we'll and, we'll uh, get into that, believe me. Then, yeah, and then, uh, but but I had the pillow, and I came and uh, um, I started. I was turned down everywhere, so I did kiosk and home shows for for years. At, at the same time, having on another parallel track, deep into addiction with crack cocaine. Um, uh, lost a 20-year marriage, and uh, but God protected that 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 the business of my pillow, and uh, you know I wouldn't be high obviously at the shows, and I could could separate the two, and um, but uh, actually in 2008 um, the drug dealers actually did an intervention on me in in Minneapolis, um, downtown Minneapolis. I'd been out for f- about 14 days. I came out of the room, and all three of them were standing there. Well, the Mike, I, 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 I just want to pause and get you to reiterate what you're saying here, because I, it may come. Some people are listening as they're half asleep. They may be listening quickly as they're driving home somewhere, because what you said is pretty remarkable just now. You were uh, in the midst of crack addiction, and you said the people that did an intervention for you and an intervention on your behalf were the drug dealers. The drug dealers yeah, were yeah. actually trying to get you off drugs. Yeah, yeah, this uh, this quite a, that's quite a night story. And they, but I came out of the bedroom, and they're all three standing. Now they knew of each other, but they had never met. And they each, each controlled sections of the city, and they. And then one guy says, uh, you've been up for 14 days and uh, and uh, we're cutting you off. And I said, what, is this an intervention? They go, call it whatever you want, Mike. And the, the one guy left and the other guy um, who went down the streets must have got the word out. Well, then the other guy sat there, um, Ty sat there, and I sat in the chair. He said, how much crack you have left? And I showed him and and uh, I started smoke, you know, smoking what I had left and I ended up running out i was carpet farming and scraping the pipe and i look over and he had fell asleep and i was 2 30 in the morning i slipped down to downtown minneapolis and i went into the streets to get crack and i could nobody would sell it to me I, they had gotten the word out i came back an hour later all defeated and walked in and he was awake he's sitting up for me he said how'd that work out for you and i was so upset and he goes <laughs> he goes give me he goes, give me that, give me your phone. You know, I'm going to take a picture. He took a picture and he said, man, you've been telling us for years that you're going to quit someday and come back and help us all out of this addiction world we're living in. And he said, we're not going to let you die on us. He said, you take that picture for that book. You're going to tell us you're, you've been telling us you're going to write someday. Well, I was kind of like their hope, I guess. And by the way, two of them work for me now and they're born again, Christian. Oh my goodness. Are. 
Yeah, and it, and but he, I didn't quit then. It was a year later, by the grace of God, on January 16, 2009, I quit everything. Overnight, I prayed to God I would never have the desire again, and I woke up. It was a miracle there. The desire was gone. And then, uh, but during that whole time, now, my pillow then was just a little dot on the, you know, I had the shows, my, my business had been taken, a lot of betrayal by other people that I broke bread with. And uh, so I spent two years kind of getting my, getting it back, you know, the home shows and fairs that they had taken with this copycat pillow. Well, then in 2011, I um, I said, you know what? I said, uh, I told my friends and family, I said, I have a dream of an infomercial. We're going to be the biggest in the world. Well, I didn't know infomercials don't work. They're just to go into the box stores to brand, you know, cheaper branding to go into the box stores, which didn't want us anyway. Well, we pulled our money, and in August of 2011, we went to film that, and we they brought in a real producer from from uh, California, I guess, and 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 I wanted to dream of a live audience, and I had really I couldn't talk in front of people, and I in my book I said, you know, I, I had a fear of rejection. I'd come out of addiction and stuff, and and they, and it was you don't get rejected if you don't talk. Well. I would do great at home shows and stuff with a table in front of me, but I step out behind that table and I would be very almost introverted shy. Well, I, we, we go to do this, our reads the night before this infomercial and I, and we're reading off the, you know, our script and the guy texts the other guy, the producer and says, this is the worst guy I've ever seen. He'll never make it on TV. The other guy texts him and said, just be, just let it go. He's paying you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> well, then the next, the next day I get down and I, I walk out and our live audience is there. And I just was petrified. I couldn't talk. And an hour and a half went by to say one line. And I said, could we please bring in a table and take away the teleprompter? I just want to do it naturally like I did at the shows. And, and we did it, and um, I had tw- it aired October 7, 2011. In the middle of the night was our first airing ever, and I had about 10 employees, and 40 days later I had 500, and we had the number one infomercial in the world by the end of December, and, um, you know, here we are now, 83 million my wow. pillows later. Oh, my goodness, that's imp- incredible. Now, everybody over the last decade that's seen a my pillow commercial, they see your smiling face. They see you wearing the uh, the chain with the crucifix on it. They see you and your your famous mustache, and they hear you and your ebullient endorsement of your pillow. Looks like you've been sleeping well, Megan. He's back. The my pillow guy. And you're looking good. I'm still feeling good. Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever. My pillow 2.0. Now, Mike, explain to me kind of your marketing strategy in why you chose to be not just in the infomercials, but the commercials yourself. Obviously, you could have uh, hired an actor even more famous than right. you, and uh, he could have delivered whatever lines you wanted him to deliver. Why do it yourself? That was sort of, I mean, other people had done it, uh, the hair club for men guy, for instance. But uh, other right. than that, it was it was relatively rare to be the go to guy for your own right. product. Why were you your own pitch man? Well, that's an, that's uh, that's a good a good point. But here's what happened: by the summer of 2014, our original infomercial had fatigued, and we had made so many mistakes in 2012. We had everything was hired out and. I pulled and I woke up one day at the end of 2012. And we were like, 
$6 million in debt. And I'm going, and so all these mistakes had been made. And what I did then is I, I took, went to a new marketing thing where everything had its own promo code and 1-800 number so you could track the success of each individual spot. Well, that was, that worked fine with that half hour infomercial. But then when that fatigued, we needed to make a one minute commercial. Then we tried a one minute commercial and it failed miserably. And that was October of 2014. And this gal, this gal said to me, she came up in one of uh, that worked for me. She said, you know, you need to be in the commercial. I said, well, it said, you know, I didn't, I didn't really think that was, that that would make a difference. And, and I, so I went ahead and went in it and it was like 10 X. It was, you know, and I think that's, that's because, you know, just cause I had so much passion for it, for the, my pillow, cause it worked. It helped me. I just wanted to um, spread, spread the word. And I think it's kind of like when I do like radio hosts or anyone in the country that sells my pillow, I will have, I will fit them with the pillow, have them sit. So you believe in the product. Then the passion just comes through in the, in the, in anything uh, you're selling. I would never sell anything that I didn't believe in um, period. I mean, if I, uh, but when I believe in something, I don't ever stop. I get behind it. So I think that's, you know, that was why it was mm. like, it was kind of out of at first, just out of necessity. It was kind of like, well, we'll try that the one last chance. And, and it just exploded. If people and, uh, are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Mike Lindell. He is the inventor of MyPillow. You can go to MyPillow.com, see all the great products that they have available on there. Now, Mike, when I, when I first met you, you were largely non-political. You would go on any show that wanted to have you, and you would, uh, you know, liberal shows, conservative shows, non-political shows, and you would talk about pillows, you would talk about your story, variety of other things. By the way, if people are interested in Mike's story, they should check out his book. The book's called What Are the Odds? It's it's available um, on Amazon or on MyPillow.com, really wherever books are sold. It's a great, great story, uh, and it's a lot more than just a business memoir. But then you really went gung-ho into being for Donald Trump. Now, Michael Jordan used to say that the reason he didn't get political is because both Democrats and Republicans bought sneakers. Well, obviously, both Democrats and Republicans buy pillows. The, the safe thing for you to do would have been not to say who you're voting for and just keep selling pillows to Democrats and Republicans. Give me your uh, rationale, Mike, for why you okay. chose to be out, so outspoken on behalf of Donald Trump. Well, um, here's, what, here's what happened. I had never voted before in my life. I didn't know a Democrat from a Republican. I was a crack addict. I was an ex-addict. I didn't think politics mattered one bit. Well, then you know, it, it got to... Uh, into 2015 and 16, and when Donald Trump came down that escalator, um, I, you know, I started paying attention. He's here's this guy running for president that's actually, a, you know, run this big company. He's very fa- this famous uh, entrepreneur, and I had never seen his uh, Apprentice or any of that stuff. I everybody just knew his name and the success, the American dream. There, well. By a divine appointment, by the summer of 2016, all of a sudden I got invited by him to come to New York City uh, and and meet with him. And he on August 15th of 2016. So I went out there to meet him. It was just him and I in his office. And I walked in, and he said, uh, 
Mike, I, I, he goes, I always see you wearing a cross on TV. Are you a Christian? I said, yes, Mr. Trump, and this is a divine appointment. I, but I, but it, I wasn't nervous. It was pretty amazing. And, and, and he had no agenda. He, he just asked me, he goes, you know, I want to know, um, how is it you're making all your pillows here? How does that work? Because I want to bring the manufacturing back. And, and they told me, whatever you do, don't tell me you're a crack addict. Well, I go, you know, I go, sir, I was a crack cocaine addict. And I said, I'm going to have this network. So my or um, the Lindell Recovery Network that's going to help addicts. It's going to be free online and help addiction across the country. And he goes, you know, and he goes, I'm going to close that border and stop the drugs from pouring in. So is this great? I, I was listening to him. It was like problem solution. I go, this guy, I walked out of his office 40 minutes later. There's no agenda that he had whatsoever other than I could see his passion wanting to help the country. And he was, here's he asking me stuff about, you know, like, here's this guy from Minnesota, this ex-crack addict. And I'm going, wow. And it really seemed like he, that he mattered what I, you know, the, my opinion or what, what, what would matter, you know, cause I was, by then I was, you know, pretty famous for making my products here and, and gotten pretty big. Well, I left his office. I said, wow, if he's a president, he's going to be the greatest president ever. Well, I walked in, I talked to a lot of his employees and every one of them said the same thing. They said, they said, great man, great leader, but it was very interesting. Every one of them said something personal that he had done for them to help them out. Every one of them that I talked to, he goes, and I got a story for it. He helped me when nobody else would, didn't, you know, and that just meant so much. I go, wow, this is the, what I just seen is, it seems like the real deal now. It was like a confirmation. Came back to Minnesota. And I said, I got to do a press release. I was the media's darling, everybody. I could say, <laughs> I'm going to walk across the street, uh, and there'd be 10 people. Hey, how fast can you How many more employees are you hiring? Wow, the American dream. You went from a crack addict to getting saved to this, uh, you know, huge company made in America. And, well, I went to, I did the press release, and all I said in it was I met Donald Trump in a, in a meeting. I didn't even say what we talked about. And the media turned on me and attacked me like I've never been attacked. And wow. I go, what? I go, what is this? I go, I didn't understand it. I'm going, what did they, you know, it threw me for a loop. But boy, that was good training for what was to come later on. So, anyway, when that happened, I went all in. I so, went all in. I said, there must be some evil behind this. So let's talk about uh, what you've been doing uh, recently, last three or three and a half years. You were gung ho that the 2020 election was not exactly fair and honest, more so than almost anybody. You did these seminars with PhDs and a bunch of other yep. things. Uh, you there were boycotts against you a bunch of other things um then let's go to the present day there were times okay. where some of the programming on fox news you were the only ad that you would see on controversial shows like tucker carlson and uh, and so forth a couple of weeks yep. ago it's reported that you're not advertising on fox news anymore Fox News is saying it's because you're not paying your bill. Uh, you had a little bit more of a, a, a nuanced perspective on that. What's the story, Mike? Why? Give us the straight dope. Why are people right. not okay. seeing your ads on Fox News anymore? Okay. Well, you got to take it back, everybody, to January of 2021. After January 6th, on January 7th and 8th, the, the day 
They tried to turn out our voices forever. 1.2 million Americans were deplatformed, and the rest were too scared to speak out about the election or, or Donald Trump because of January 6th. On January 9th, I was handed evidence that explained why that all. I had done my own investigation. There were all these counties in the United States and states where all these people had voted that didn't live there. And I go, people are good people. I can't imagine 4,000 people running into Wisconsin going, hey, let's go vote for Biden. It didn't make sense. I, I, I look at numbers and it didn't make sense. Well, on January 9th, I was handed evidence that did make sense because it was computers. So I never let up. And by the spring of, and, and when I started talking about it loudly, all of us, I got the biggest boycott. 22 retailers dropped the number one product they've ever had. Every single box store across the country. I, I got banned at Twitter um, and you name it. They, they, boy, they boycotted and just banned me just to kick out their number one product just because I'm speaking out about, hey, I have this. I have this. Doesn't anybody care? Well, by the spring of 21, I went on Jimmy Kimball to get the word out. And he attacked me there, but he asked me one thing. He said, Mike, if your friend Donald Trump had been selected, like you say, would you still be sounding the alarm? And I said, absolutely, I would. This isn't a Democrat or Republican thing. This mm. is a people. We have a big problem with our election platforms. Now, I got attacked and attacked and attacked. Then it kind of then it let it let up everything that could be boycotted. I got boy. The last one was Walmart, I think, a year ago. And um, but you name it, they had all the all the um, shopping channels. So then you bring it up to this August, everybody. In August, I came out with a plan to secure our elections, to get us to paper ballots, hand counted, same day voting. A beautiful plan I laid out in August. From that time on, my pillow got attacked and canceled like no time in history. Wow. And it's all about because their CEO is to secure election. What happened is one after another, I got debanked, demerchants, uh, merchant server left, American Express squish, all the, all the creditors out there, vendors. If I had 90 day credit, they squished it to 30. Fox was the last one on, in November. They said, you know what? Your normal 90 day credit, we want 60 day credit. They went from 12 weeks to eight weeks. And we complied. We spend about a million dollars a week we were spending on, on Fox. Went all the way through December, and then we went to do our ads in uh, uh, our new commercials to test them. And they said no. And uh, we were very, uh, you know, I put out, I, I thought it was because uh, we added Lou Dobbs to my network. I have Lindell TV. We added them on a Monday, and they did this on a Wednesday, and uh, two or three days before the Iowa caucus. Mm. Now, I do have breaking news on that, though. I think because I have a media company that buys from them. I don't buy from them directly. And uh, I just heard when today that they might have worked out something. Um, so, I'll, they, you know, stay tuned for that. So, well, yeah, we'll, keep you, an eye, know, we'll, we'll keep yeah, an eye out for you that. you know you're right. Go ahead. And you know you are right about one thing with all the – back in the day with Tucker, I don't take – I advertise on CNN, MSNBC, Fox. It didn't matter. I kept politics. I was, right. This is my employee-owned company, and they and whatever we can get to help the employees and our customers, we're going to do. Uh, so, Mike, how are you doing these days? You're not exactly destitute, are you? Do I need to give you a loan or something? No, when I've got when the, the part, the part that I have to, you know, I did have lawyer that was very famous. You know, we were paying two million dollars for these uh, frivolous uh, lawfare lawsuits, and. And uh, we, we got different lawyers. I talked to the lawyers before they left. I said, I've got to, 
I've got to get, uh, you know, get. I'm a businessman. We're going to get. You can't keep paying that kind of money. So we got we we, we switched law firms to a lot uh, lesser rate, and then also. Uh, but the biggest thing is, I put tens of millions mm-hmm. of dollars in to everything for these platforms across the country. Had nothing to do with defense. This was to go out. Uh, any to investigate, um, to get rid of the electronic voting machines and get paper ballots. Yes. And I've been doing that for two years, and that's with LindellPlan.com. And now that's I'm out of money for that. I'm completely out of money, so I can't. So that's when I've reached out to the public to you know to go to LindellPlan.com and help it out. We were ninety percent there, and we need to have fair elections like. Uh, Argentina did it in four months. Taiwan just did one. You have all over the world, you have uh, where they have uh, paper ballots, hand counted, where people trust their elections. On, on that note, Mike, we're going to have to end it there. It's great to talk with you. I appreciate you spending some time with us late at night. And uh, I can't think of anybody now that we're on in Minnesota that we would rather kick things off with than you. Thank you, my friend. Best of luck to you. Yep. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. Mike Lindell. Uh, check him out, MyPillow.com. Questions, comments, thoughts, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I found a love for me Darling, just dive right in Follow my lead I found a girl Beautiful and sweet I never knew you were the someone waiting for me Cause we were just kids when we fell in The great Ed Sheeran singing Perfect. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're, we're performing or playing on this show, you can join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, this is a uh, birthday bumper music selection by one of our greatest listeners, Bridget Guzzi. And uh, she and her husband, Robert, listen to this program all the time. They're great listeners, and they've become uh, great friends. And again, I, I don't know what it is about people that are born on February 1st, but uh, much like my friend Mike Wolf, she made the... the she and Robert made the hop, skip, and a jump from uh, the New York area to Florida, where they happily reside. A lot to get to over the course of the next few hours. We're going to take your calls at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Debbie Schlussel will be here next hour. We'll talk movies and more. And uh, we'll uh, get into the news of the day with uh, Brian Kilmeade. We'll also talk Charles Dickens. Meantime, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered.
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Is right. Elmo is a big red Sesame Street character, very popular with the children. Now, I have to say, I never really, I, I never thought of Elmo prior to um, a year and a half ago. Uh, I, I had been decades before I'd said the word Elmo. I think the last time that I'd given any thought to Elmo at all was during the Tickle Me Elmo uh, Christmas uh, craze when he was the go-to Christmas present years ago. But my son happens to be very fond of Elmo and in fact so much so that whenever he wants to watch Sesame Street, very rarely does he even say, let's watch Sesame Street. He says, oh, Elmo, Elmo. He wants to watch Elmo. And you know, Elmo is the go-to guy for him. Loves the way he looks. He loves the way he sounds. Yeah, Elmo's very happy to see you. And <laughs> so is Dorothy. Oh, say hello, Dorothy. Guess what Elmo is thinking about today? <laughs> well, clearly Elmo may be very successful as a children's entertainer and as a children's educator, but he may not make it as a caller to talk radio. That's because one of the things that drives so many talk show hosts crazy is the question, how are you doing? Now, it doesn't bother me when people ask me because... It's just a way of being polite. It, to me, it's not, you know, they're not expecting a sincere response. You know, it's just, you, they're just doing their thing. How are you doing? Okay. It's just, it's it's almost an extension of hello. So generally when someone asks you, how are you doing? You don't actually tell them how you're doing. So without this common piece of etiquette, we would be pinned in place for hours by coworkers, vague acquaintances, friends, spinning forever about exactly how they're doing. Well, Elmo made that mistake on Twitter this week. When Elmo posted a very kind-hearted check-in on Twitter... He may have assumed he'd be shielded by the same sort of social mores that I feel like I'm shielded by when I say to somebody, how are you doing? But he comes from Sesame Street, which is clearly no place for lies. So Elmo goes on Twitter this week and says, Elmo is just checking in. How is everybody doing? Fairly innocuous. Again, I want you to keep in mind, this is a character that's intended to educate three- and four-year-olds about the letters of the alphabet and the numbers. That's Elmo. Well, there were thousands of replies and a few interventions from his Sesame Street pals, 
And it was pretty clear people are not doing well. And it's not surprising because it looks like a lot of people are very tightly wound. But there's a war in Ukraine. There's all sorts of situations going on in the Middle East. There's all these mass shootings. There's a lot of young people dealing with things like anxiety and depression, not to mention uh, drug use. And the tenor of the responses to Elmo, who's about as lovable as you can be. <laughs> Welcome to Elmo's world. Oh, guess what Elmo is wondering about today? Wait, what? So the tenor of the responses to Elmo reflect a lot of people being upset. And some welcome this kind of dark humor in unburdening themselves to a puppet who is, I hate to break it to you, and I hope my son's not listening right now, fictional. He's fictional. And Elmo's question also led to some heartwarming conversations about emotional health and the importance of checking in with friends. But the responses to Elmo's innocuous innocuous question, again, the only thing he said was, how are you doing, really should be etched into stone so future generations can know exactly how we felt in 2024. One person writes to Elmo, Elmo, each day the abyss we stare into grows a unique horror. One that was previously unfathomable in nature, our inevitable doom, which once accelerated in years or months, now accelerates in hours, even minutes. However, I did have a good grapefruit earlier. Thank you for asking. Okay. Another person writes, Elmo, I'm depressed and broke. Another person writes, every morning I cannot wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday I cannot wait for Friday to come. Every single day and every single week for life. Another person writes, I'm at my lowest. Thanks for asking. Again, I, I just, I can't help but think people knew the kind of response that Elmo was looking for. They knew where Elmo was going. And they're just being a little bit difficult. Okay. And again, I'm not trying to say that anybody that's having a tough time shouldn't be open with the fact that they're having a tough time, but they're unburdening themselves to a Sesame Street character. I mean, really? The kind of issues that users were raising with Elmo, I think, are issues that you should raise with a close friend or a spouse or a family member or a therapist or a counselor, or someone that you trust. Not an anonymous, fictional puppet. It it almost struck me as all the... and, And again, maybe it's shame on Elmo for turning to Twitter, which is not the best medium. And I've tried on social media and on Twitter included. I've tried to have real conversations on social media, and inevitably you're disappointed. But maybe the fault is Elmo's for trying to turn to Twitter, a medium which is just 
it's so shallow and it's just so driven by these banal responses by saying, how are you doing? Maybe this is what he should have expected. One of the more brutally honest replies, Elmo, I'm going to be real. I'm at my effing limit. Elmo, I've got a level with you, baby. We are fighting for our lives. Guys, it's a puppet. It's a puppet. Chill out. He's not really asking how you're doing. Making small talk. And again, shame on Elmo, I guess, for turning to Twitter for this. But um, likely sensing the situation had equal chances of improving or dissolving in rapid order, other members of the Sesame Street gang chimed in, Big Bird, Cookie Monster, Snuffleupagus, and others, thanked Elmo for being a good friend and offered their own fuzzy listening ears to anyone who needs to talk. Wow, Elmo was glad he asked. <laughs> That's what Elmo posted two days later, employing the most rhetorically loaded wow imaginable. Elmo learned that it's important to ask a friend how they're doing. That's what he said. So he tried to uh, turn it into something positive. But there is a real issue behind the humor because clearly a lot of people aren't doing all right. And they're waiting to tell anybody about this. Look, I see this when I talk to people on the air. I mean, it's clear a lot of the people that talk that call me on the radio here are not doing too well. But, really, like, what's the point of telling Elmo how you're doing? How's that going to help? Maybe it does. I don't know. You want to weigh in, you certainly can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is one of those things that, you know, it could have been a joke, And because of the nature of the responses that this Elmo Twitter handle got, it it became really serious, honestly. And it became a cause uh, for, it became something for people to analyze and look within themselves and debate about. Comment as you like, 800-848-9222. Jay is in Cincinnati. Jay, I'm afraid to ask, but how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine, Frank. Wonderful. You, you know, the whole Tickle Me Elmo thing is just creepy. My younger brother's the Sesame Street genera- generation. I'm not of that generation. Well, um, I mean, it, Sesame Street's been around for 50 years. Co- correct, it has, but I'm not, I'm not of that. See, I used to watch that with my younger brother. It was entertaining, the Sesame Street thing right, sure. me. Okay. Now we had an older guy in the neighborhood who used to, I'm, I'm older. Okay. So he used to be friendly with the kids. He would come and he would grab your earlobe and rub your earlobe and just kind of hold it in his hand and rub it. Now, if, if I were to tickle somebody's child today, or if I were to grab their earlobe, I'd have a real big problem on my hands. You know that as an adult, it's just creepy. The whole, the whole tickle me Elmo thing. It's creepy. Right. I mean, nobody's suggesting that, you know, you do that as an adult. But I, I guess, you know, the thing... Even that, kids. Even, even kids tickling each other. I mean, it's, there's a point where that's not even funny. You know, I was just at a car show, and there were these tuner guys with these uh, hot rod Japanese cars. And uh, one guy was tickling another guy, and he says, if you do that again, I'm going to knock your teeth out. And it's just, it's just not even funny tickling people. Right. But, Jay, I mean, we're talking about a, a, a fictional red puppet here. Right, I mean, I mean, it's just uh, weird. I mean, I'm to me. I mean, I can only take so much of the Sesame Street stuff, really. 
You know, All right. It's, it's so, fun and games, you know, but it's it's weird. So be it, Jay. Thank you. Yeah, I, again, I you know I think I watched Sesame Street a little bit. I remember which one of these doesn't belong here. I used to like the Count. I liked uh, Big Bird, right? I mean, I, I enjoyed a lot of the Sesame Street characters. Or Kermit, when he was on Sesame Street, I don't see him that much anymore. I didn't think much of it. You know, it's a nice way to learn the numbers, nice way to, you know, to learn the, the letters. It's fine. It's kind of educational. It's kind of fun. But uh, my son likes it, right? So we watch it. We watch it together. And, and sometimes it's interesting. They have interesting, um, you know, adult celebrities from time to time. I, I get a kick out of it. They have fun songs. I, I like it. I never really thought about it. But it, uh, first of all, I don't follow Elmo on Twitter. But it, if I did... The last thing that I would ever do was would be to respond to him about anything. And yet, here are these folks saying exactly how they're doing when Elmo asks. It strikes me as very bizarre. Hey, uh, coming up in about 12 minutes, we're going to talk with uh, Debbie Schlussel. Debbie Schlussel is an attorney. She is a uh, conservative commentator and more, and uh, we're going to talk with her about movies. She's also a film critic, and uh, she'll give us her take on what's worth seeing and the Oscar nominations as well. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. 800-848-9222. Very interesting piece of legislation uh, coming out of Oklahoma. An Oklahoma state senator has proposed a law that would make watching pornography a felony and ban sexting among people who are not married. This bill, which is set to be introduced this month by state senator Dusty Devers, would prohibit consuming or producing sexual content that lacks serious literary, artistic, educational, political, or scientific purposes or value in any media. The measure defines obscene material as the depiction or description of any acts of sexual intercourse, including those that are normal or perverted, actual or simulated, Basically, this is a bill to ban sexting outside of marriage. I have to tell you, I think this is absurd. I think this is just crazy. For starters, I mean, it's amazing to me that it's a Republican that is uh, proposing this because so often we hear about Republicans being the party of less government and limited government. And to me... uh, Government should not be involved in what consensual adults are sending to one another, whether they're married or unmarried. I mean, this is just ridiculous. Crazy. People should be able to sex with whomever they want if they're consenting adults. You want to talk about children, that's a different thing. I find this bizarre. I find it to be totally unconstitutional And I don't know where this guy, I I don't know what the possible motivation of this is. So under the measure, pictures of human genitals or women's breasts would also be banned, as well as lewd exhibition of it would carry prison sentences of up to a year, a year. Really? Really? You send someone a sext and you're going to get a year in prison? And $2,000 fines. 
The proposal would also allow anyone who produces or promotes the allegedly untoward content to be sued by any state resident for $10,000. Really? This is so stupid. What's going on in Oklahoma? My goodness. Uh, There's a a fellow who is uh, the host of a show called Secular Talk by the name of Kyle Kalinske. Uh, He says that this is against the First Amendment. I agree with him. Obviously, this is against the Constitution. This is against the First Amendment. Obviously. Obviously. But he's pushing ahead anyway. Married couples would be exempted from the ban provided they only share explicit content they created together with each other. Oh, thank goodness. So if you're married in Oklahoma, you can continue to sext with your husband or wife. This is insane. This man is being paid by the public with your tax dollars if you're an Oklahoma resident. This is crazy. I don't want to live in a country where sexting gets you a year in prison. That's the kind of thing you expect in Iran. This is nuts. 800-848-9222. Haley is in Michigan. Hi, Haley. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, I don't know. This um not on Twitter too much, but Elmo uh, <laughs> getting on there is kind of funny. But it is an adult thing, Twitter, right? It's not for little kids. So who is Elmo looking to appeal to? Who was who was the audience on Twitter for Elmo or any of the other? The Big Bird or any of them. So I, I, guess, I guess you're making the case that uh, children, you know, Elmo shouldn't be tweeting to begin with. Yeah, because, you know, the audience on Twitter is certainly not three-year-olds. Like you said, your son or whatever. Sesame Street, I've never watched it. It started when I was a kid. We never paid attention to it. But anyway, it, it is kind of funny, you know. Hey, you know what's really absurd, though, is that southern border. Right? Uh, that should be secure. Need to get the National Guard down there. Instead of having the National Guard overseas, they should be down at the border, uh, protecting I, protecting the border within. The three that died in Oman, for instance, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, a lot of time over there. Uh, we've been knowing this, been brewing for a long, long time. Spent a lot of time in the port of Aden, where the coal got blown up a year before in New York. Yeah, the at the rate we're going, Haley, so. we may have to send Elmo down there. Uh, it, it's certainly a, a crazy situation. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Silas, what's on your mind? Yeah, um, is that a real story? Or yes, a, a, I wish I had made it up. It's insane. This man is an elected official in Oklahoma. This is crazy. That's just one more tool they'll use to get rid of people who they don't want. Throw them in jail. I mean, the, the Jan 6 thing, the global warming, and now pornography. Well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think... And he's a Republican? Yeah, I don't think they're trying to throw uh, anybody in prison that is emitting greenhouse gas emissions, but your your point's well taken, Silas. 800-848-9222. Joe is in New Jersey. Hi, Joe. Yes, good evening, Frank. I'm uh, one year older than uh, Curtis Lewa. That's about 70-plus years. And uh, I was a great fan of Mr. Rogers. I actually uh, shed a tear when I heard him pass away uh, 10 years now. Anyhow, Sesame Street was a great learning tool. Uh, My mother, God rest her soul, she was so nervous about Y2K, the same way we have anxiety about the election Mm -hmm. coming up. So 
she passed away in 08, but uh, she, you know, she made it through 08, but boy, uh, 00, that was a big turning point in my life, of course. And uh, Well, Y2K everybody... for you? Sorry? Y2K was a big turning point for you? Uh, for my mother, and okay. I saw her anxiety. So I, sure. I feel anxiety with this next election, and that's what half the people in America are probably poor and low income. I'm luckily retired, pension, Social Security, and I got food on the table every day and a roof over the head. But God bless you for uh, sharing all this, and I love you too, and this is a great show. Well, thanks, Joe. Appreciate that. 800-848-9222. Robert in Suffolk, what's on your mind? Hi, Frank. Uh, I believe people should just say hello or hi. I mean, this how you doing it. Yes, it's a more recent conventional colloquialism, a greeting of sorts. I don't think Elmo should be on Twitter. I mean, it's a way to get these kids onto Twitter and be exposed to all other kinds of stuff. Yeah, you know, I hadn't thought about that. That's a point that the uh, the prior caller made. I guess that's true. I guess I think you're supposed to be 13 before you're you're on Twitter, and that's certainly you know once you're kind of 13, you're you're you've aged out of the target range for Sesame Street. So I get that, right? So who is Elmo really addressing? What audience is he really appealing to if he's uh, out there tweeting? I get that. Makes sense. Yeah. That kids like five, four, six years old. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fair enough, Robert. Fair enough. I can't argue with that. I just do think it's still incredibly bizarre <laughs> that uh, this would be what people's responses to Elmo wants to know how you're doing. I would think the vast majority of people would say either fine or great. Thanks, Elmo. Or nothing. You just keep scrolling. But I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. 800-848-9222. Debbie Schlussel joins us next to talk movies and more. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The Bee Gees, one of the greatest musical groups of all time, singing How Deep Is Your Love, uh, birthday bumper music selection from Bridget Guzzi. Uh, someone who I have no doubt, because of her fine taste, is absolutely a fan of the Bee Gees, is also an outspoken conservative commentator, an attorney, a blogger, and uh, someone who is a very, very astute film critic as well. That is the one and only Debbie Schlussel, who is kind enough to join us regularly, including right now. Debbie, it's great to talk with you again. Thank you. Great to be back. And wow, quite an introduction. And of course, I love the Bee Gees. Of course, my two favorites are Stan Alive and Tragedy. <laughs> two great selections, but with the Bee Gees, there are no bad selections. Hey, uh, Debbie, since uh, since last we spoke, Ron DeSantis has dropped out of the presidential race. I know uh, he was your guy. You were the first person, even before he announced uh, on this program, touting him as a presidential candidate. Give me your thoughts on um, on what went wrong with the DeSantis campaign and kind of how you view the presidential race now, both in the Republican primary and the general election. Well, you know, what went wrong? I think a lot of things, but the main thing is Trump. He was still in the race, and I think that at this point, he was getting, he was sucking all the oxygen in the room. He was getting so much attention. He was getting the backlash uh, factor with all of the prosecutions. I think a lot of people circled the wagons because of that around him. Um, and I just, he got all the attention. I also think a lot of the stuff I read about the DeSantis campaign is that they just didn't do a lot of the right things. For example, he had this campaign manager in New Hampshire that was putting together a puzzle, um, a thousand piece puzzle or something. And the people on the rest of the people on the staff were kind of puzzled as to why this guy was spending time doing puzzles instead of concentrating on the campaign. Hmm. And that's just one person. I don't, one person can sink a campaign, especially if they're at the top, but I don't think that was the main reason. I just think it will be and was impossible to be Trump. Now, remember that a year before with Trump still in the race, but not getting all this attention, not being prosecuted and so on, Ron DeSantis was at 51% in New Hampshire, and Trump was willfully behind, but he just couldn't be beaten this year, I think. So like you have said that you had voted for Trump previously, both in the uh, general election and in the primary. Right. These days, uh, you're you know a little frustrated with Trump for having dinner with anti-Semites and some of the wacky things that he's said. And uh, you've said that if it ends up being a, a Trump-Biden race, you're not going to vote for Biden, that you're going to probably go um, third party. Uh, well, you've been pretty critical from time to time of Nikki Haley as well. How do you view the Trump-Haley matchup, both in terms of your preference and how you handicap that race in general? You know, I don't trust her. I think she's a chameleon and a shapeshifter. She is whatever. She thinks people want her to be. She's been so all over the map. I remember when she was very anti-Trump when he was running the first time and was actually a great candidate, in my opinion. Um, and I was proud to vote for him. And then all of a sudden she did a 180 because she got appointed UN ambassador. Um, and then she was against him. And then she was, she's been all over the place. She's not going to win. Trump is, is going to win. He's beating her everywhere. 
Um, and she's really just there, I think, to, for the uh, anti-Trump Republican vote and for some donors to feel good. But in the end, she's not going to get this. He's going to be the nominee. So I, I think it's really irrelevant anything she's doing right now, unfortunately. For me, um, I would consider voting for her. If she were the nominee, I, I would probably vote for her. She's not going to be. So it doesn't matter, even though I don't trust her or even really particularly like her. Um, I, I would vote for her. I didn't really like Trump the first time he ran or and thereafter. I, you don't have to like the person personally. You just have to like what you think they're going to do if they get elected or you have to like them better than the person they're running against. I think I'm probably just going to throw my vote away and vote libertarian. It all depends. We'll have to see. Um, what happens on election day, because, you know, it's still almost a year away. We'll see. Um, but I just, I'm very disappointed in a lot of things Trump did. Like I said, I was proud to vote for him three times in a primary and two generals, but I just, I don't know. And I think there are not enough people that don't want him who voted for him before that I really don't think he's going to win. I mean, anything could happen between now and then. And I thought Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. could be the nominee and that didn't, that, that I was woefully wrong on that. So we'll see. So now Debbie, I, I am, you know, I vote for third party candidates all the time. So, you know, I wouldn't begrudge anybody making a protest vote, but a lot of people are listening to you right now who might be conservative and they're screaming at their radio. They're saying, uh-huh. all right, we know, we know Trump is whatever, whatever your version of, of being terrible is. We know he says crazy things. We know he does crazy things. We know he does outlandish things, but you know, if the choice is of the two candidates that can win, Trump and Biden, a lot of the conservatives listening to us are going to say, all right, with Trump, you have a better chance of getting lower taxes. You have a better chance of not getting a lot of this woke stuff in the military. You have a better chance of getting, um, you know, strict constructionist judges and Supreme Court justices. And even though Trump may be a disaster in terms of the things that he says and who he has dinner with, in terms of policy, isn't the country better off uh, going with Trump than Biden? Address those folks. Talk to those folks that have that mentality. Why would you vote third party rather than vote for Trump when a lot of people, even those that don't like Trump, view those as the stakes in the upcoming election? Well, you know, what? you are right in all of those points. So I can't argue those points and I wouldn't. But my problem is, I don't want to, there, at some point, there has to be something that is a bridge too far. There's some, it has to be something that is, is a deal breaker. And I overlooked a lot of things each time I voted for Trump. I can't overlook things anymore. I don't want Kanye West and Nick Fuentes invited to the White House. Uh, I am afraid people like that are going to be all over the White House. I don't want Alex Jones there. And Alex Jones, Trump hired him to host the January 6th rally. Uh, you know, I'm not talking about what happened in the Capitol later. I'm talking about he had him host his rally. And uh, Alex Jones at that point was saying that the Nazis that marched the Char- in Charlottesville were uh, were Jewish actors. I don't want anti-Semites all over the White House. I'm sorry. At this point, there is a bridge too far. I also don't know. To me, the Middle East and what's going on there is very important. And Trump is was running around saying stuff like that he thinks that Abbas 
the Palestinian Authority guy who was the paymaster of the Munich Olympic terrorists, that he is like a father figure and such a great guy that Israel doesn't want peace. They've had a chance. They had when he spoke with them, he's been he denounced Netanyahu. Um, he has not spoken out against what's going on over, you know, what happened on October 7th, except for on October 7th. And then after that, he's kind of been radio silent other than to attack Netanyahu and Israel. So I'm really concerned about that. I don't think anybody really knows what Trump is going to do in a second term or that he's going to do all those conservative things that, that you're saying, because Trump was a liberal. I didn't trust he was going to do anything for me the first time I voted for him. I was pleasantly surprised he did a lot of great things. I don't know what he's going to do in a second term. I have no idea, and I don't trust that. I don't know what's going to happen, and I'm very worried. So I don't know what I'm going to do in November, but probably I cannot vote for a person that has dinner with Kanye and Fuentes and Alex Jones hosting his rallies. That that's a big problem for me. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Debbie Schlussel. She's been a uh, commentator on a lot of political issues for a long time. We also take advantage of her expertise and her opinions when it comes to uh, movies. Also been a, a terrific blogger. Debbie, it's been a while since you updated that blog. A lot of folks ask me whenever you come on, hey, how come Debbie's not updating her blog? What's the story? Yeah, you know, I have to get back to that. I've just been so busy with my law practice and going to movies and other stuff that I just something had to give. Mm. Um, but I and also I've just had a lot of tech issues with it and so on. I have to update it. And then once I do, I think I am going to get back to posting things, maybe not as regularly as I once did, but uh, hopefully with some regularity. But that's a good question. And thanks for asking. And I appreciate that people to go there, and at some point I will be back to things, God willing. All right, uh, let me ask you about the movies. Since last we spoke, the uh, Oscar nominations have come out. This is one of those years where there's ten Best Picture nominees. I've only seen uh, a handful, but you got The Holdovers nominated, American Fiction, The Zone of Interest, Barbie, Anatomy of a Fall, Past Lives, Poor Things, Oppenheimer, Maestro, and Killers of the Flower Moon. Of the ten nominees Nominees for best pick for best picture, Debbie. Are there any that you've seen that you think are either must see or must miss? So I really liked the holdovers. I think it's deserving of all the awards it's won so far, especially Paul Giamatti as the lead character in that movie. He's a great actor. You can never go wrong with him. And I I think it's a great old fashioned kind of a movie that kind of reminds me of a. 70s version of Dead Poets Society. Um, it's very good. And the acting is very good. The 70s sets and, and everything else are very good. Movies must miss so many on that list. I hated Killers of a Flower Moon. First of all, it's over three hours long. It's ridiculously long for no reason. And basically the message is white people are evil and just <laughs> want to scam uh, American Indian, Native Americans. It, I, I hated the movie, um, and it's the reason it's getting all these awards and nominations is it's very woke, and that's the only reason. Um, it, it's not a great movie. It's actually long, slow, and boring. The story is not that outstanding. The acting is terrible. Robert De Niro, I do think, is a great actor when he plays the right roles. He's playing some uncle 
in the with a southern accent that goes in and out the entire time and so is and Leonardo DiCaprio is his nephew he also has that horrible accent that's going in and out uh, I did not like the movie at all and I you know it really does it's way overrated does not deserve any of this hype uh, I would say Oppenheimer is also way overrated um also way too long I like the parts where it showed how they were developing the nuclear weapons, those were far and few between. A lot of the movie is herky-jerky and goes backwards and forwards between different hearings that they have uh, in the movie to question Oppenheimer. And then also between his love interest to his mistress and his wife and the drama with that. Who cares? I didn't. And there, a lot of it is also pandering about why did we develop the nuclear weapons and how evil we were to do that. No, thank God we did, because otherwise millions of people would have died that didn't because World War II was ended because of nuclear weapons. So thank God we did develop them. We don't need to be sorry or do repentance. Um, and it's just ridiculous. So I did not care for that movie either. Uh, there are quite a few on that list. Barbie, me, uh, Men Are Evil is the message of that. It was such a stupid movie, but way overrated because it's been built into some feminist, um, must-see, must-like thing, kind of like Taylor Swift. Um, I, you know, I just, I did not care for it at all. And if you never see the Barbie movie, you, your life would be just fine. You know, on Saturday night, my wife and I started watching Maestro. And, and you know, I keep odd hours, obviously. I fell asleep after about 15 <laughs> to 20 minutes. And, and I, I, I'm not sure, legitimately, I'm not sure if I fell asleep because I was tired and I was trying to go back to regular hours on the weekend or because the movie was boring. Did you see Maestro? And, and what was your take? Did I fall asleep? because it was boring or because I was tired? Because it was boring. Mm -hmm. I think it was, it's another one that was way too long. It's over two hours long. It's pointless. Um, I love the style of it. It's highly stylized and the whole black and white stuff and everything. But what was the point to show that this um, conductor and composer was tortured because he was secretly gay Um and that his wife knew and could never have the relationship that she really wanted and resented it, even though she entered into this marriage knowing all of this. What was the point of that? There really was no point to me. Um, I just said in one minute what the movie was about. Why did it need to be over two hours? It was long, slow, and boring. And I fell asleep repeatedly. I had to watch it in batches. It just wasn't an exciting movie. There was no plot to it, and it was just a long, slow, tortured mess. Yeah. Um, it, so of the nominees, it sounds like your favorite is The Holdovers, which I saw and I enjoyed immensely for many of the reasons that you decided. Were there any films that were not nominated that you thought were really were overlooked this year in terms of uh, something that people should check out, but not necessarily anything that was actually nominated? So, you know, I can't think of anything that I thought was like outstanding and a masterpiece that probably should have been nominated. I did enjoy, it's not really the kind of stuff that would get nominated for an Oscar movie these days, but I did enjoy on Apple TV plus the thriller sharper, which I thought was very well mm. done 
well acted and clever. Um, I did enjoy, but in a weird way, and it definitely shouldn't be an Oscar because I think it went way too far. But the idea of dream scenario, because it was interesting. It was like a Twilight Zone movie gone a little bit too far, but it was interesting. And Nicolas Cage was very good in it and very different away from what we normally see him in uh, for a kind of role. Um, I can't really think of anything else, you know, that stood out in my mind. I'd have to go look at the list. But I really did like The Holdovers as one of the best movies I saw uh, last year because because of just the story, the acting, everything that was done. And I did not have any reservations with it. Anything out more recently that uh, that you've seen and that you have an opinion on one way or another? So tomorrow, or I'm sorry, Friday, well, tomorrow night it's going to come out, or tonight, I guess, is Argyle, which is being very hyped. It actually comes, which I didn't know this until the end, from the Kingsman universe. I did like the movie Kingsman, but this movie had a great idea, but it just became a mess because it had too many twists. It had one big twist, and then it had too many twists thereafter. And I felt like my head was spinning for no reason that was, uh, you know, worthy. So it's a movie about Bryce Dallas Howard playing this novelist who's lonely and lives out in the country. But she has this very popular spy novel, spy romance novel series called Argyle. And then she's riding in a train one day and she finds that these government spies are trying to get her because or different, there's different opposing government spies. One is trying to mm. protect her. He's played by Sam Rockwell, who's always very good. I like Sam Rockwell, and he was good in this movie, trying to protect her. And then there's a giant twist that I don't want to say because it'll spoil the movie. But then there's a million twists after, and it just gets to be stupid. So it, it was very interesting to a point, and then it just became dumb, like I would say about uh, halfway through until the end. So I would not pay to see this having seen it. Um, so there's that. Um, I, you know, I'm a big Jason Statham fan. I love almost everything he's in. And I say almost because I saw the beekeeper and it was to me out of keeping with what he normally does. Hmm. He normally only goes after the bad guys in this movie, Mrs. Cosby, Felicia Rashad, is a woman that rents him some property. She gets scammed by scammers to give away all of her money in her bank account so she commits suicide and he wants a revenge against the scammers. Great. But then he kills like tons of innocent people, including a lot of law enforcement and FBI agents in the process. I didn't like that. He just destroys everything. Um, so to me, it was pointless, not your typical Jason Statham movie. So the beekeeper was not the greatest for me um i gave you some other movies on the list um the zone of interest which is nominated for an academy award and just came out nationwide i thought was a very very cold movie it's about the commandant of auschwitz it's not a documentary it's a feature film and it's a very cold movie because you almost never hear what's going on in the camps you occasionally do you can hear noises you don't really see much of it um, and it's more about the ambition of this commandant and his family and how cold they are to what's going on right next door to them. But, of course, they're cold to it. They're Nazis. And he's the commandant <laughs> of some of the greatest 
not great in terms of good, but largest scale murder of not just Jews, but many people who were murdered at Auschwitz, millions of people. And, you know, of course, they're not going to care about them. They're, they did not consider them human. To me, it was a very cold movie. I would prefer more of a meaningful movie like Defiance, where the Jews fought back. Sure. Or where, you know, you saw their humanity and uh, that was they were the Nazis were attempting to snuff out. Um, it was not for me, and I would not vote for it if I voted in the Academy Awards. It was also long, slow, and boring as well. Um, Le- Debbie, last question. You know, you, you talk about the uh, if you voted in the Academy Awards. One of the things that we've seen with all these award shows, the the Emmys, the Golden Globes, uh, I mean, uh, you know, you name it, is the audiences, the television audiences for all of these award shows has dwindled significantly over the years. It used to be that um, if you were going to the office on the Monday after the Oscars, everybody had seen the Oscars, and that was the thing that you knew everybody was talking about. These days, that's not the case, not at all. Uh, I'm curious, why do you think that's the case? Why has the audience for these award shows so dwindled? Well, I think it's a few reasons. Number one, in those days, there were only three channels. And everything on the other channels was probably a boring rerun you'd already seen going up against the Oscars. Number two, the uh, films that were nominated were popular films that everyone went to see. They weren't these obscure movies that are nominated, for the most part, only because they're woke or now they have these new Oscar rules that you can only be nominated for Best Picture if you have, um, you know, minorities playing significant roles or you have a woke message. That's ridiculous. They're not about what's really the best movie, bar any other categorization. Um, and people want to see movies that they liked, that they went to see win. They have nothing to identify with here because they haven't seen any of these movies, including The Holdovers. I think... Also, they're tired of hearing woke Hollywood. Hollywood is out of so out of touch with the rest of America. The only reason people watch it anymore is really to see the outfits. And so women are mostly watching mm. this. It's the Super Bowl for women. And that's why you see a lot of makeup ads and women's products and, and so on. Um, and I don't think people want to hear these kinds of woke messages that are in all these acceptance speeches. You know, in the 70s, when Vanessa Redgrave made a speech against Israel, right. and called the Zionist hoodlums. Yeah. Everyone was mad about that. And it's like the great, late, great Patty Chayefsky, who is a great Hollywood screenwriter and so on, he told her off. He had a speech and he said how her speech was unnecessary Right, and he ridiculous. got cheered. These days, it would be right. the exact opposite. That's a, exactly. a, great, a great point. Hey, Debbie, we're going to have to end it there. I appreciate the time. Let's do this again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Debbie Schlossel. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Cause I'm in 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thanks for listening. Um, you know, it's funny. <laughs> my son, Carmine, you know, he goes to school now, preschool. And, um, you know, sometimes I'll pick him up. Most of the time my wife will pick him up. And then when I see him when he comes back from school, I'll ask him, you know, how was school? And almost always he says, good. And I'll say almost every day, what did you do in school? And he says the same thing every day. Sing songs. Now, I can't dispute that, one, because I'm not there, and two, because I look at the kind of repertoire that his, you know, the the review that his teacher sends home with him where it says what they do, and usually there is some sort of song singing. But now, this little bugger is saying that for everything. So I took him to the library a day or two ago, and my wife asked him, oh, what did you and Daddy do at the library? And he said, sing songs. And I said, ah, we did not sing songs. There was no song singing. So yesterday, I took him to the bank with me. My wife asked him, what did you and daddy do at the bank? He says, sing songs. There was no song singing at the bank. Especially not, you know, me being negative $32. Not a song to be sung. I don't know what's up with this kid. We'll see. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. is the other side of midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. I am a gambler. I don't think I'm a problem gambler, mostly because I don't have the money to be a problem gambler. But I enjoy going to a casino in Atlantic City or wherever else. I've played in Vegas. I've played in uh, the Catskills. I've played in uh, Bermuda. A couple other places. I've played in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. A couple other places. Mostly Atlantic City. That's my go-to spot, by the way. Happy to be heard right now on um, Talk 1400 WOND in Atlantic City. And, you know, I like craps. I play blackjack once in a while. I'll play uh, Baccarat. I hate playing roulette, but for some reason, I always get suckered in to playing roulette. I have a tough time walking past that roulette table, and if I see red has come out eight, nine times in a row, okay, it's bound to be black. Let me place $100 on black. Okay, it's red again. It's probably going to be black now. Let me place $200 on black. All right, black came out. Now what do I do? But whatever, you get the the point. I, I always say that I don't play roulette, but I do once in a while. One thing that I've never really gotten that into is sports betting. 
I've played sports bets before, never placed an illegal sports bet in my life, and given the number of of gangsters and bookies that I know, that's a, a pretty impressive thing, I think. But, um, you know, I'm a Mets fan, so a lot of times during baseball season, I'll place, you know, $100 on the Mets if I feel good about their chances, or, you know, on a, on a football game or something like that. I've done that in Lang City, I've done that in Vegas, and, you know, it's fine. I've never really gotten into digital sports betting and online sports betting. About three weeks ago, I placed my first digital sports bet, you know, from my mobile phone. And I won. Great. And I used the money to buy stamps. Um, Well, actually, no. First, I placed a 90-cent sports bet, and I won that. And then that became, I think, $1.74. And I I said, let me bet that. And then it became $3 and and change. And then I placed a more substantial bet, and then I used that money to buy uh, postage stamps right before they raised the price. The point is, it's not my thing, but this is all the rage right now. The whole world, the whole country at least— is on fire when it comes to legal digital sports betting. Bets that you can place right from your phone. And there is a fascinating situation going on in professional sports right now. One of the reasons that for years they never wanted Las Vegas to have a professional sports team, either football, hockey, or baseball, and it looks like now they're going to have all three, is because they were concerned about the influence of betting on the players for that team. They were concerned that gamblers would pay off these players and they would do things like uh, shave points or whatever whatever the case may be. The reason that Pete Rose is not in the Hall of Fame for baseball, even though he has you know over 4,000 hits, which is almost a superhuman feat, is because he bet on baseball, including games that he was managing. Now, as far as I can tell, um, and who knows other than Pete Rose exactly what he was betting on, but he bet on the Reds. He bet on his own team, the team that he was managing, to win. Now, it's not right, and you shouldn't do it. But that was enough, even though those bets took place in the 80s, to keep him out of the Hall of Fame and ban him for baseball for life. So there's a pretty strict line of demarcation. You're not supposed to bet on games that you're involved with as a player, as a manager, as a coach. Okay. There is a story that has gone ultra viral in the New England area. There is a player, a football player, by the name of Keishon Boutte. I believe that's the proper pronunciation. If that's not the proper pronunciation, you're welcome to call in and correct me. 800-848-9222. Keishon Boutte played his first season as a member of the New England Patriots this past season. Patriots are out of it. Now it's all the, uh, obviously, the 49ers and the Chiefs. And this was his first season as a professional. However, he made bets on an app like DraftKings, FanDuel, Caesar. He made bets on an app in college as an underage person. See, 21 is the legal age to bet. And he made over 8,900 bets while he was underage. 
while he was in college in, yes, games that he was playing in. This was an average of, he bet on an average of over 20 games a day during the period in question. Some of the bets were on LSU, his college team, as he played in them. He was betting on games he played in as a college student. And at least one bet was an over-under for his receiving the yards. So understand, he wasn't just betting, oh, I I support my team, my team's going to win. He bet on himself. He signed his NFL contract in May. So far, nothing has come out of uh, you know about him betting since then. But this is now, according in the last day or two, this is now being investigated by the NFL. The NFL is investigating these accusations that the Patriots wide receiver Kayshawn Butte placed 8,927 bets in a 13-month span while at LSU. And my question for you is, look, they didn't catch him when he was in college. Now he's a professional. So far, there's no indication that he's ever placed a bet on a professional football game, which, again, there's a strict prohibition about you're not supposed to do. What, if anything, should happen to this guy? Because with the Super Bowl, in with it, the very first Super Bowl in the history of Las Vegas taking center stage for the next 10 days, gambling is going to be a pretty important element of this. And now, coming out yesterday, the NFL revealing that it's investigating this Patriots wide receiver. This is going to be very interesting. And now... He's actually been arrested by the Louisiana State Police in relation to this 13-month run of sports gambling that he allegedly engaged in while in that state. So in a warrant issued for his arrest, Louisiana authorities allege that Butte placed at least 8,927 online bets between April 6, 2022 and May 7, 2023 which encompassed his final season playing for LSU. And at the time of the alleged wagers, this man, Butte, was 20 years old and not legally allowed to gamble in the state. Authorities also claim that 17 of the bets were on NCAA football games, including six involving LSU. So, so far, there have not been any allegations that Butte, um, you know, did anything like uh, take money from a gambler to throw a game or anything along those lines. But I'm curious. Now, obviously, he's going to have to deal with the legal ramifications of betting before he was old enough to. You know, you got to be 21. He was 20. But what should the NFL do with this? Here's a professional player that placed an enormous amount of bets while he was a college player. What should the NFL do? Should they do nothing? Should they just kind of let law enforcement do what they're going to do? Or should there be some sort of a suspension here? Because I have to tell you, I have noticed the last few years, the and I brought this up, I think, with Dominic Carter last week. Um, maybe it was even Monday. I don't remember. But I think it was last week. I honestly think that the surge in legal sports betting is part of the reason 
for the surge in viewership of the NFL these days. I think you are seeing people watching games they would never have watched in an era before they could place bets on these games. And, you know, I have a cousin uh, who is a young man. He's over the age of 21, but he's, you know, a younger guy. And I, um, he's placing these bets all day long on all these games. And I said, oh, what team did you bet on in, in this game? He said, oh, the outcome of the game doesn't matter to me. I'm just best, I'm betting on the players. I'm placing prop bets on the players. And the NFL has seriously benefited from the interest due to legal sports betting. So I think if they come down hard on this and they suspend this guy while they're benefiting from this whole new level of fandom, I think it's a little bit hypocritical. I'm curious what you think. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I don't see how the NFL can punish him for stuff that he did when he was a college player. If they find that he did this while he's an NFL player, that's a different ball game. But I think they have to say, look, if I was the commissioner, I would say, uh, look, you know, he's going to have to face the music. Whatever the criminal justice system does with him, the criminal justice system will do. But as far as we can tell, he never violated any NFL policies. And that's that. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Because the revelation of this investigation comes at a very interesting intersection for the league, which will find itself under a huge microscope for the next 10 or 11 days with the first Las Vegas Super Bowl. Because as it stands now, the NFL and its teams have all sorts of gambling advertising. It's not just the ratings that they're benefiting from. It's the advertising. You you watch a football game, every other commercial is DraftKings, is FanDuel, is Caesars. So I really think that the, the NFL has been kind of doing the ostrich routine. They're sticking their head in the sand saying, oh, gambling, what gambling, what gambling? But they're cashing the checks from the people that are making all sorts of money with gambling. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222, uh, 800-848-9222. Hey, coming up in about uh, 15 minutes, we're going to talk with Helena Kelly. Uh, she's going to join us from across the pond in the U.K. Uh, she has written a book called The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens. Really interesting book. Uh, caused me to learn a great deal about, about uh, Charles Dickens and, uh, you know, let it be said that uh, this is a radical reassessment of the famed Victorian author, and we're going to get into we're going to get into that in a in a big way. All right, uh, Mark is in New York. Hi, Mark. Yes, Frank. Uh, I can't really weigh in on this particular incident, but uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Arch Schleister from the Baltimore Colts back in the early '80s. He was a number one draft pick. He had gotten himself pretty involved with the gambling, uh, like a couple hundred thousand dollars. He had to go to the Colts who had to pay uh, all the bookies off. And, uh, you know, and then he just uh, ruined his career. He never, he never, uh, 
he was never able to get over it. And, uh, you know, he, it just, he went in all other areas and, you know, jail time and everything, but he was, he was top Ohio state player, uh, Baltimore Colts, uh, had the whole franchise riding on him. And, uh, you know, this is way before, obviously way before, uh, doing anything on the phone, but, uh, I'm just saying this this has been this has happened before. Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, I I'm sure it has. I'm sure it's old as old as as sports itself. I think the the situation now and I guess what makes this different is that uh, this is the first time that we're seeing at the NFL benefit from so much sports advertising. JR in Brooklyn, give me your view. Oh, the NFL should do absolutely nothing here. They have nothing to do with it. He was placing, he said, what do you have, six out of almost 9,000 bets on himself? Like, it's... it's what, maybe it's, less. It's, it's a little maybe unethical, less. Yeah. but... Yeah, maybe less. It's unethical on his part. It's the NFL. It's the home of, of non-ethical... You know, how many crim- How many college kids have been charged with crimes of, like, felonies? You know, real serious crimes against other persons. This kid is the NFL has no way to do anything, and he had nothing to do with the NFL. It's not like he was betting on himself while he was a under contract with the NFL. Yeah, I mean, I, I am exactly where you are, Jr. I, I think um, you know, look, if he broke the law, you know, let the cops investigate. If they have to charge him with right. something, so be it. But um, I don't think. It's. Uh, I don't think the NFL really has any role here uh, at all. I, I think they need to, uh, you know, basically say this has nothing to do with us. If it's proven that he bet on a, a National Football League game, then that's a different story. But as far as anything that happened before he was an NFL player, who cares uh, if you're them? What? Yeah. Thank you, Jr. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Patrick, what's on your mind? Good morning, Frank. Yeah, they're hypocrites, NFL. Uh, they projected to make $2.3 billion from these, uh, you know, DraftKings and these other websites. And they, they, they call it a, uh, that doesn't include what they call an integrity fee, if that's, uh, you talk about an oxymoron. So, well, what's an yeah, integrity fee? I don't know. I remember hearing about that one time. Uh, that's something they have, uh, some kind of, uh, agreement with, uh, these uh, gambling websites. Okay, well, that's it. Yeah, that is bizarre. Thank you, Patrick. 800-848-9222. Melvin is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, Melvin. The NFL is very hypocritical. Jim Brown touched on the late Jim Brown touched on in his book, Alabama's, because number one, they go, oh, most of these uh, the team owners, they own racehorses. How the heck are they going to tell us? They, how do you legislate morality? It's a waste of the taxpayers when they go out to someone who goes, they need to legalize gambling nationwide and collect the tax revenue. This way, this will reduce our personal income tax. Because people going to gamble, people going to get intoxicated, and definitely people going to fall again. So when you talk about the issue of morality, and you need to let Pete Rose go into the Hall of Fame. Oh, well, so I, agree. I agree with that, Melvin. Uh, for I mean, look, I, I think um, you know he's now admitted it for years. Everyone say, "Oh no, you can't let Pete Rose in. You can't let Pete Rose in because he's never he's never admitted to gambling. Now he's admitted it, uh, to it. I think he's actually even apologized, but don't quote me on that. But he's not doing the Sergeant Schultz routine that he did years ago. That's for sure. Ron is in Michigan. Hi, Ron. 
Hi, Frank. I, I say the mafia rules gambling still in this country and in the world, and they rule the NFL, and nothing's going to happen. And what makes me sick is you see these big NFL players touting gambling, touting gambling, or these black celebrities touting gambling. And how many poor families are going into divorce, beatings, robberies, murders, because of gambling, gambling? It's nothing but mafia, plain and simple well, money. Well, so, Ron, forward. tell me, because um, I'm interested in what you're saying, um, because from what it looks like to me, it's not that at all. From what it looks like to me, it's the corporations that are the new mafia. It's the corporations that are making it's money. Going legit. It's called going legit, Frank. They're all legit now. Plain yeah, and simple. I, I, um, see, that, that's not how I see it, right? I mean, I uh, don't see um, the guy that was, was running numbers now becoming the lotto dealer. I don't. I, I don't see the guy that was, uh, you know, a bookmaker now working for DraftKings. I, I see people still gambling. The only difference is now that it's gone from something that was in back alleys to something that is mainstream and advertised on network television. I, I see it uh, going from something that was uh, something that was shh, whispered about, sometimes an open secret, to now just being open. So I don't think um, I, I don't think it's a, a mafia-run thing at all. I think it's a corporate-run thing. Totally. 800-848-9222. Joaquin is in Pennsylvania. Hi, Joaquin. Oh, Frank, buddy. Hey, you know what? I'm getting to like you more and more, but you are confusing the living crap out of me because you keep changing subjects so much. Casino gambling. Oh, my gosh. Something I love because I got to be treated like a high roller because an ex-boss took me to go play with him. <laughs> and I got to show that to my wife, too. If you want to make a bet on the roulette wheel, if you have enough money, you got to play through for a while. Place either red or black or even, and then put the street in the middle all the way up, and then put a bet that goes in between the zero, double zero, and another bet that intersects the line underneath. Yeah, well, so I don't like that method, honestly. I I mean, the best, uh, first of all, I don't like bet, betting roulette in general, but if, if you are going to bet roulette, the best roulette betting method that I've, um, I've ever come across is the Uncle Floyd method, where you place two bets. You bet, you bet one through 12, and you bet two through 12, and then um, you, you know, you will win, chances are, one of those bets, and then whichever one of those hits, you move them to uh, one the, the third one that doesn't hit, uh, say 24 through 36 or you know 12 okay. through 24. And then you end up winning small, but you win if, if you play that in the long run. Uh, but it's the, okay. you know, and again, I, I don't think roulette is a good game because it doesn't play true, no. it doesn't pay true odds. But there's just something about walking by that roulette table when it's hit red nine times in a row. And even though I know intellectually that that doesn't change the odds of whether it's going to be red, black, or green on the next spin. There's just something about seeing, oh, there's a streak of nine reds in a row. I got to put a hundred bucks on black that I okay. have found very difficult to resist. Yeah, but you know what? Give me a second here. I know Baccarat inside and out because uh, I don't want to say I got compensated, but anyway, we used to collect all the information from the shoes because you can write, mark everything down in the shoe. And it shows you everything that goes on in a 50-50 proposition. Now, if you have a chance, look up a guy named Don Johnson, and he owns a thing known as the Heritage Club. 
And this guy stocked the casinos for a couple million sure. dollars. Sure, no, I remember. I, I followed. I followed that run very closely. I, I, I'm going to tell you right now. I tabulated some stuff, and what you find with the fifty-fifty proposition is so amazing. And any play plays in the casino where they're changing blackjack, that they're going to pay blackjack like one and a quarter and one and a half. If they change the rules of classic blackjack, I would walk away from that table because that you have a half a, the, the casino only has about a half of a percent edge over you in blackjack. But yeah, you have to know how to play uh, yeah I mean, in the case of Don Johnson, and, and thanks for the call, Joaquin, in the case of Don Johnson, and this is not the actor, Don Johnson, but in the case of Don Johnson, that was by, uh, blackjack, not Baccarat, but he was able to play under certain rules, and they gave him more advantageous rules because he was such a high roller. They basically gave him the opportunity for, um, I, I don't remember the circumstances, but then they wouldn't. he won a couple of million, as uh, Joaquin mentioned, and then he wanted to keep playing. They said, no, you can't play under these rules anymore. If you want to keep playing, that's fine, but you got to go out there, meaning where all the regular players were playing, and you have to play by the regular rules that they're playing by. And he didn't want to play at that point anymore by the same rules that everybody else is uh, is playing in. Um, all right, we're going to talk about Charles Dickens in just a moment, and we'll continue with your calls a bit later. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Everybody is familiar with Charles Dickens. Obviously, I don't think there are many stories that are more famous than A, a Christmas Carol. Um, but it really goes so far beyond that. You talk about Oliver Twist, Great Expectations, David Copperfield, and countless others that you may not necessarily know. Not only books, but short stories and a bunch of other things. And there's this total mythology that has developed over the course of the last 150 years or so about Charles Dickens, not only his works, but about the man himself. And there's been a lot of interest in how the characters depicted in his works may have been reflected of the life that he lived himself. And uh, next week, it will be Charles Dickinson's birthday. He was born February 7th, 1812. And 
There has been a fascinating new look at Charles Dickens, and it's caused me to actually, and I don't really read a lot of fiction, but it's caused me to want to go back and reread some of the Dickens books that I haven't read in years to see if I'm going to read them with new eyes and detect anything now. Because the book that I have um, been reading for the last two weeks is sort of revisionist literary history, and I mean that in the absolute best sense of the word. I am very, very pleased to be joined by... Helena Kelly, a professor of English literature and author whose latest book is The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens. Uh, Helena, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Good morning. Hi, hello, good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I should probably say uh, I'm not a professor in the English sense, have been in the American sense, just it's a, it's a, slightly, different, it's a slightly different title over here. But um, uh, but yeah, I have I have taught English literature at university. Well, you know, given I the fact that myself. <laughs> given the fact that we're talking to a lot of Americans, we'll, we'll give you that title of uh, okay. of professor. Uh, but um, you're you're an author in every sense, the American and the English sense. That's for sure. Um, so, yeah. Alan, obviously, you've done a lot of writing over the years. You're clearly very interested in uh, in literature. Tell me um, why Charles Dickens. What what first sparked your interest in looking at the the life and literary works of Charles Dickens? Um, well, so I actually uh, grew up uh, in uh, a place called the Medway Towns, which is in Kent um, in England, which is where um, Dickens spent huge portions of his life. So when he was a child, he lived there. Um, he spent his honeymoon there. Um, he lived there when after he had his first baby. Um, and uh, when he was finally rich enough to kind of buy a house, uh, for himself, that was where he decided to buy a house. So um, I, I've kind of, it, it, it's an area that's really kind of like steeped in Dickens, the road names, like in the housing estate, sure. like named after Dickens characters. Um, and a lot of, um, a lot of his stories are set there. So it's where Great Expectations is set, the marshes, I actually kind of grew up on, on the marshes that Great Expectations is set. So he was, um, he's kind of, he's kind of always been a constant in my life, um, in, in some ways. But I, um, I I started really to to kind of wonder why whether whether the things that I'd always been told about him were, were necessarily true. Um, I mean, I kind of this is this is this is sort of my my thing in a way. So I, I've also written on Jane Austen that, that mm-hmm. sort of um, the idea being very much that that sometimes. Um, we can be too familiar with writers and that kind of, it's sort of, we, we think we know things about them because we've been told things about them. And quite often those turn out not to be all that accurate. Um, and so I think, I think that quite often our kind of reading of these very, very famous, like these great, like really well-known and, and, and well-read texts gets a bit kind of pushed off to one side from, from, from where it should be. So that, that's kind of my my. General, um, general kind of um, uh, concentration work-wise. Before we um, before we discuss the deep dive you did into Dickens' life here, which is a fascinating bit of uh, literary detective work, did you have a favorite, or do you have a favorite Charles Dickens book? Um, I love Great Expectations, mm-hmm. um, and I also love um, the novel that he was working on when he died that he didn't actually get a chance to finish, which is The Mystery of Edwin Drood, uh, which is also set, set where I grew up. So you can, you can literally like walk around um, the, 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 the places where it's set. All the buildings are still there. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I just I've, I've always found it from, from when I was quite young, very kind of very engaging. It's a great like it's a great story if people haven't read it. It's not not maybe one of the best known ones. Um, wow. And it does break off about halfway through um, because he died very suddenly. Sure. Well, that'll um, that'll so that'll a, bring in a fantastic read. Nevertheless, that, that'll bring a speedy <laughs> end to anybody's book, I would think. Um, <laughs> one of the things that I don't know that I had a full appreciation of uh, prior to reading through your book, and we're talking with Helena Kelly. She's the author of the Life and Lies of Charles Dickens, is how big of a celebrity Charles Dickens was. I mean, he was in his day, this was not just someone that experienced posthumous fame, this was someone that was even bigger than Stephen King was when he was alive, right? Speak to that, his level of celebrity while he was living. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, sort of, um, I, I, I hadn't actually sort of appreciated properly until I started working on the book, how quickly it all happened. So um, Dickens kind of, um, <clears throat> he basically gets into journalism when he's in his late teens, early 20s. Um, one of his um, uncles uh, owned a, a sort of small newspaper, so that was how, how he got into it. Um, and uh, then he kind of started writing these little short stories. Um, and then he was, um, he was kind of commissioned to um, write the write the copy, I guess, um, for a a, 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 um, a sort of serial story um, called the Pickwick Papers. Um, but he wasn't he wasn't kind of the main draw there. Like the um, the main draw was the illustrator. He was a guy called Robert Seymour. who was really really well known at the time. He did these like comic comic pictures that would then be like reproduced and sold in shops and things. Um, but uh, and so they start working on the Pickwick Papers. Do the first couple of um, first couple of sort of um, uh, uh, installments of it um, and then very very sadly Seymour who, who had had ongoing mental health issues um, took his own life and they decide that they are going to go on with the project get in a new illustrator and then sort of almost immediately after this happens and this is also like just after Dickens has got married so he's been married for like you know six weeks when this happens um, all of a sudden, the Pickwick Papers goes stratospheric. People go mad for it, um, you know. And, and within a, a matter of months, so by the time his first son is born, which is you know, almost exactly nine months um, after he got married, um, like he is famous. Like, and and it is a level of celebrity, mm. very, very, very similar to, to kind of the celebrity that that we, we, you you might think of. Now, it's, it, it is it very quickly becomes. Um, basically, kind of like influencer level. Like it's a, he's he's a big name, and people, the, the the press is sort of the press is all over him. They have sto- they run stories about like his siblings and his father, and um, it, it clearly is a very is a very kind of um, stressful situation for him to be in because obviously, like most celebrities, you you need the press, right? You you've you've got this. You've got you. You are the you are the product that you want to sell. Um, Dickens, in fact, you very quickly uh, end up with a with a lot of people who are financially dependent on him, and so he needs to he needs to kind of keep the press on side, and he does. He sort of feeds them stories. Um, he does press releases, but he also and whether this is kind of direct re, re, kind of reaction in a way, he also makes quite sure that there is stuff that they don't find out about. Um, and there are several things um, in his kind of childhood and early life that he is clearly very, very, very protective of and very, very reluctant um, to let anybody know. Um, and so he kind of he plays the game publicity wise. Um, 
and he uh, he sets up this persona, um, which is very kind. You know, he's he's a he's a great husband and father. He's very kind of domestically minded. He runs all through the 1850s a magazine called Household Words. Um, so just to kind of um, like bed into that, you know, this is this is like Victorian um, domesticity, the Victorian family. It's very kind of you know cozy and, and engaging. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, he does lots of very prominent charity work. Um, he has this kind of public persona, um, that he is very happy, um, to, to kind of engage with the press in, in that persona. Um, but there's, there's a lot of stuff going on behind that he, he kind of doesn't really, doesn't really talk so much about. Um, but it, it turns out that <clears throat> actually quite often that's bubbling up mm. in his, um, in his work in, in kind of unexpected places. Uh, we're talking with Helena Kelly. Her book is uh, The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens. We're going to get into some of those lies uh, momentarily. Uh, Helena, um, Dickens found that his fame, sudden and incredible as it was, was a bit of a mixed blessing. How, how so? What was, the, what was the problem with the degree of fame that he achieved? Partly, I think the problem was that he was expected to uh, work at an absolutely astonishing rate. I mean, you, he, um, uh, we, we, we know all these kind of like famous novels. Um, he actually starts working on Oliver Twist when he hasn't finished the Pickwick Papers. So there's a uh-huh. period where he's working on both of them simultaneously, um, and both, both in installments. So he, he, you know, he, has a, he has deadlines. He has to produce a certain number of words by a certain day. Um, and then when he's halfway through all of the twists, he starts working on Nicholas Nickleby, which is his next novel. Um, he does uh, nonfiction work. He's still um, kind of carrying on with, with sort of, um, you know, other projects. He's got, he's got this, there's, there's this terrible sort of little comic opera that he, he works on. There are plays that he does that are sort of adaptations of his stories. Um, so I, I think he, he kind of certainly in that early period of his life, he's under an astonishing amount of stress, like really... Uh, just it, it it must have been i i can't imagine working like that with that much public scrutiny um and with people kind of so so hungry for what you were going to produce next and of course the press you know the press always does this right it, it builds people up and then it starts kind of pulling them down a bit oh this story isn't so good oh why is he doing this oh why is he not faster at, at producing whatever um and um, so he he does you know, he does experience an awful an awful lot of stress, um, and there are kind of there are various sort of you know private stresses in his life. His father um, uh, was a financial nightmare. Essentially, got into a lot of debt, um, and sort of always expected someone else to get him out of it. Mm. Um, and that that quickly becomes Charles's job. Um, and so he's he he has. Uh, um, he he basically it really does seem to be the case that he uh, when his um so his sister-in-law after after he got married his um sister-in-law uh Mary uh basically came to live with him and his 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 wife Catherine which was not not particularly unusual at the time um and um Mary and Dickens became very close and then she suddenly died um very very suddenly um she it was um you know sort of They've been out to the theatre and then they come home and, you know, a day later she's dead. Um, and this was a this this seems to have been a kind of trigger, I guess, for him to have a nervous breakdown. Hmm. Um, but uh, obviously there's all this there's all this other stuff going on. You know, it's just he's you know, he's working at a like a, like just 
uh, putting so much pressure on himself work-wise and having all this, you know, the, 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 the death of his first collaborator, I think, really did bother him much, much more than he, he led on. He found it, they, they had had a, they'd had a work disagreement um, just before Seymour um, decided to, mm. to kind of take his own life. And he did it in a very violent way. Um, and um, uh, so he, he basically, when, when Mary dies, this is just kind of, this is, this is the last straw. And he, um, he clearly, there's a, there's a period where he, he can't, he, he doesn't actually hit his deadlines for the, for the two books that he's working on. Um, and that's all over the press as well. Mm. Um, and there are stories all over the press that, oh, you know, he's ill, basically. He's been, like, he's had to stop because, like, he's depressed. He's kind of, you know, paralyzed and, uh, like, with, with um, you know, like, grief and is unable to work. Um, so very, like, very, very exposing, very kind of, um, uh, I mean, I can't, I, I can't really imagine what it must be like to, to have, have that happen to you to have sort of you know public speculation on on not only what's going on in your in your kind of family circle but what's you know what's going on in with with your mental health um and um yeah it's a um it's one of the it actually makes me feel quite sorry for him in a way that despite all this despite all this success he kind of gets he he yeah he 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 sort of um he he clearly finds it deeply deeply upsetting, and he he sort of you know he he again he he starts he starts to drop all these. This is this is pretty much the point at which he starts to kind of um, uh, clearly insert stories into the press, um, and uh, he sort of claims, oh, it's all a joke. You know, obviously, um, obviously, I'm fine. There's nothing really wrong sure. with me. Um, but actually, the rumours kind of carry on for several years after that. It does it does seem to be the case that he was. Um, he was certainly he was certainly suffering a lot of stress. I mean, and whether like exactly what what kind of form that took, whether he he was having a breakdown, whether he was depressed, whether he was, um, but um, you know, it's um, it, it was he 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 sort of found I think that he he'd entered into this like you know Faustian bargain um, with the press and with the public where he you know, they they wanted they wanted more and more and more of him and he gets so he and he sort of. He that that's that's when he sort of starts creating this persona that in fact bears very little resemblance to him, um, like to the real to the real person. And he so, manages. Yeah. So Sorry. what is, what is the difference, Helena, between the persona that he created versus reality? What well, give us some of the key disparities? Um. Well, it's it's. It, Fascinating persona in a way. So there's this book. Um, there's this book that's published in 1844, which is called uh, A New Spirit of the Age, um, which is basically um, it, it, it's sort of this. Um, uh, uh, it has these uh, sort of portraits, pen portraits, um, and in fact um, physical like picture portraits of various different like famous new Victorians. Obviously, Queen Victoria had just come to the throne um, at the end of the 1830s. Um, and uh, and so this is oh we've got you know we've got a new queen things always go well when we have a queen um, you know this is and this is this is like a new age and these are the new people who are going to shape it and there are there are some some other names in the book that that people might recognise there are also some people who are completely obscure now but the first one one on the you know, the first chapter um, is on Charles Dickens but um and it's a uh, and it talks about all his work and it's it's very very flattering um, but it's 
also really fascinating to see how little biographical information on him they've managed to get. Right. Um, this is so. So the author was a guy he knew. Um, clearly, he'd kind of gone and uh, he'd gone and interviewed all the people that he writes these essays about. Um, but he hadn't got anything out of Dickens. So there's nothing about where Dickens went to school. There's nothing about his family background. There's nothing about where he grew up. It's as if he kind of sprang to life, fully formed, to write the Pickwick Papers. And as if there's sort of nothing, there's nothing in, there's, there's nothing behind him. Um, and um, obviously, of course, and we, and we, we, we know this certainly now, um, how um, that, that he had, in fact, quite a difficult childhood. Mm. Um, his uh, father was imprisoned for debt um, in, uh, when, um, uh, when Dickens was a little boy, when he was kind of 10, 11. Um, and he possibly um, was um, forced to go and work um, in this terrible sort of tumble-down warehouse on the banks of the Thames. We, we now know, um, or we've been told, um, that, um, uh, his, uh, um, that, that when he writes uh, the, the, the very similar scenes in David Copperfield, where David is kind of you know, forced to go and taken out of school, forced to go and work, um, in this kind of you know horrible place on the banks of the Thames, that that's basically kind of autobiographical. And I, um, one of the things I kind of explore in the book is, is is how how to what extent that's actually true. But of course, at the time, like people didn't know this. That wasn't that wasn't revealed until after Dickens died by his uh, by his friend and his biographer, this guy called John Forster. Um, and so, it's it, it's kind of this fascinating. Um, it, it, it's, he, so Dickens, to his first readers during his lifetime, is this sort of fascinatingly rootless man. Like we don't, they didn't know mm. anything about his early life at all. Um, and um, it, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating to see the extent to which he managed to keep that going. Like he mm. gave the press certain things, but that whole that that whole kind of early life, which obviously he draws on all the time in his writing, like he needs to draw on it. Um, he, he does manage for his entire life, basically, to keep that, um, to keep that private. Uh, one of the things that I've heard about Dickens from time to time over the years is that um, his, his characters and some of the phraseology that he uses, both in his works and maybe even in his, his life beyond the written word, is that there's a strain of anti-Semitism to some of his writings. Did your research show that at all? Um, I, I mean, yeah, there's there's some appalling anti-Semitism, um, particularly in his in his early words. I mean, Dickens has a um, uh, Dickens has some moments um, in, in private letters, in kind of journalism, and in his novels and, and, and stories, where frankly he says some pretty awful stuff uh, about a lot of different um, ethnic groups. Um, but uh, I mean, there's there's a particularly awful um, letter um, that he writes. Um, uh, after the uh, the Indian uprising in in in, in 1857, um, and that is, I, I mean, the, the stuff in that is so horrible that I'm not I'm not even going to repeat it. Um, but yeah, I mean, anti-Semitism the, the anti-Semitism is probably the the kind of uh, longest running issue that that he has. Um, and um, obviously, in all of the twists, you have the character of Fagin, um, who is uh, I mean, I think it's a hundred plus times that he's described as the Jew. 
Um, and obviously there are that there are uh, a lot of kind of you know anti-Semitic tropes mm-hmm. that Dickens hits up there. Um, there are um, there's also um, uh, some very anti-Semitic stuff in a, a slightly later novel called The Old Curiosity Shop, which doesn't doesn't get read very much nowadays, um, but was used to be huge in America. The Americans loved it when it was when it first came out. Um, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, I, I don't think you can you can uh, gloss over the fact that there's there's some there's some shocking anti-Semitism um, early on. Um, but the the interesting thing that 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 I discovered, I mean, I'd always I'd always sort of thought it slightly strange that he was so anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. So, um, so the Meadow Towns, um, Rochester, Chatham, they are. Um, so Chatham was a massive naval dockyard. It's a Royal Naval dockyard, um, and so um, you know, for four hundred plus years, you had all kinds of people coming in and out of there. Like it was very very diverse. Um, community from very very early on. I mean, this, this happens with dock towns, right? Um, and there was um, there was when when Dickens was living there as a little boy, there was a well established Jewish population, and it was really quite well. Right, you'd um, think someone that worldly much. wouldn't have uh, those sort of prejudices. Makes sense. Hey, yeah, uh, Helena, sort of I'm, was, was, uh, sorry. I'm sorry, we're 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 out of time, but uh, I really okay. enjoyed this book, The Life and Lies of Charles Dickens. I hope people check it out. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Yeah. Thank you. If people want to comment, you're welcome to 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I was in my early 40s With a lot of life before me When a moment came that stopped me on a dime couple of minutes before the top of the hour, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. That's Tim McGraw. You ever want to know what kind of music we're, we're playing, uh, just join the Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. You know, it's funny. I, um, you know, I've been biking more than a human being should bike. You know, I'm doing 14 miles a day on the stationary bike. And I went to this, um, you know, this uh, event yesterday, and I and I rearranged my schedule so that I can make sure I got my 14 miles in before this event. And then, you know, I see two other guys at this event that I know, and somebody takes a picture of the three of us, and they show me the picture. And I swear to you, I look like I'm 450 pounds in this photograph. And I am absolutely convinced that all of this exercise is totally pointless. Now, I think it does give you a little energy, and, you know, it does help you stay awake for the drive home. You're not drifting off because you still have all the endorphins going. But it really does uh, seem quite futile. 
Uh, I know, I know it's not. I'm sure, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years of, of biking 14 miles a day, I'll, uh, I'll eventually lose a pound. But my goodness, what a depressing photograph to see. I'm just looking at this now. Rough. All right. Until next hour, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, those Southerners do not like to monkey around. Oh, no, no, no. Be grateful that your neighbor only has that yappy dog because locals and animal rights groups in Texas and Georgia, they're going crazy over plans to put tens of thousands of monkeys in their backyards. What do I mean? What's the story? Morning glory. Southwestern Georgia residents packed a city council meeting this week to determine that officials block a, to demand, excuse me, that officials block a company called Safer Human Medicine from constructing a $396 million monkey breeding center. Yes, I said that number accurately. $396 million monkey breeding center in their community. The proposed center would hold up to 30,000 long-tailed monkeys to be sold to medical research groups. Some of the executives who run Safer Human Medicine used to work at the $12 billion biomedical company Charles River Laboratories, which came under fire last year for allegedly labeling smuggled wild monkeys as lab bred. Charles River also recently tried to build a facility in southeastern Texas, but a local outcry and a PETA campaign have stalled those plans. Um... Opponents of these monkey facilities worry about a few things. And honestly, if they were trying to build this next to my house, I would have the exact same concerns and I would loudly be protesting uh, in their opposition. And, uh, you know, I'm on the community board in my neighborhood. I would be speaking out against this at the community board as well. They complain about noise levels. And you can understand that, right? I mean, I don't know what what uh, preventative measures are put in place, like soundproofing to keep these monkey noises from, uh, you know, seeping outside of the property. But I have to think it's pretty substantial. I don't care what kind of soundproofing you have. You have 30,000 monkeys, it's going to cause a bit of a ruckus. The other thing, and this is much more serious, obviously, is the risk of escape. 30,000 monkeys, 
what are the chances that one, two, three, five, seven, ten, a dozen, a hundred get out? I think the chances are pretty decent. And along with that, obviously, what are these monkeys being used to do? And I don't like it, but I've come to recognize that this is a, a fact of life that these monkeys are used for medical research. Because monkeys, apes, are incredibly close relatives to the human in terms of anatomy and everything else. So, I mean, I don't love the fact that we do medical experiments on animals. And I, it, whenever there's an opportunity to do that same sort of medical research and get the same results on something other than animals, I'm all for it. But unfortunately... I don't think there's any substitute for doing things like testing cancer cures or uh, testing cures for any number of maladies. I don't think there's a substitute for real live animal research. But if this place is next to your house, you got to be concerned about the risk of escape, the spread of disease. And what about the disposal of each facility's waste. You know, 30,000 monkeys, there's going to be a lot of monkey poop. So PETA estimates, and, you know, obviously PETA has an agenda, so take that for what it's worth. But PETA estimates that the amount of waste at each of these facilities could fill an Olympic pool every day. And look, if your house is near one of these proposed monkey research facility sites, you got to be worried that it's going to affect property values. You know, you pay a lot of money to get save up, you get a mortgage, buy a house. Do you want to not only risk monkeys running on your running on your property? You got to worry about the noise. You got to worry about the waste all over the place. You got to worry about the spread of disease. But property values, it's legitimate. So the breeding facilities would be a domestic source of research monkeys for clinical drug testing amidst a tight global supply of these test animals. So we'll see where this goes, uh, but I think it's going to be very interesting. Very interesting. All right. Um, you know, we've been. I said we were done talking about Taylor Swift because everybody is now talking about Taylor Swift, and I like to go the opposite of uh, the direction everybody else needs to go. But unfortunately, the whole world has gone into the Uber conspiracy range, and I think I have to go the opposite way. Now we have some fun with the Taylor Swift phenomenon. Taylor Swift is a media phenom, right? Everything she touches turns to gold. Uh, Concerts, you know, she just does better concert sales than anybody's ever done. Grammys, wins more Grammys than ever. More best-selling records than anybody. More uh, singles in the Billboard Top 10 than anybody. I mean, everything, everything, everything is a record. Movies, she breaks records there. They, uh, They show her in football games. The ratings go up. They show her at the Golden Globes. The ratings go up. She's just a, a phenom. She's a phenom. And so um, we talked a little bit about one of the conspiracy theories that uh, Jesse Waters uh, from the Fox News Channel raised about Taylor Swift, saying that she was a psyop for the Pentagon. Well, Taylor Swift's the biggest star in the world. Sorry, Gutfeld. 
She's been blanketed across the sports media entertainment atmosphere. The New York Times just speculated she's a lesbian. And last year's tour broke Ticketmaster. A tour that's revenue tops the GDP of 50 countries. I mean, I like her music. She's all right. But I mean, have you ever wondered why or how she blew up like this? Well, around four years ago, the Pentagon Psychological Operations Unit floated turning Taylor Swift into an asset during a NATO meeting. What kind of asset? A psyop for combating online misinformation. So you have Jesse Waters believing that Taylor Swift may be a uh, Pentagon psyop. Vivek Ramaswamy, now so she's dating um, Travis Kelsey from the Kansas City Chiefs. And uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who I like, um, tweeted, I wonder who's going to win the Super Bowl next month. I wonder if there's a major presidential endorsement coming from an artificially, culturally propped up couple this fall. Just some wild speculation over here. Let's see how it ages over the next eight months. Jack, um, Jack Posobiec, who's a conservative, you know, influencer. He shared a version of the conspiracy theory during an interview with Roseanne Barr where he said he believes the Democratic Party and other powers are gearing up for an operation to use Taylor Swift in the election against Donald Trump. Roseanne Barr apparently agreed, saying that Swift is definitely somebody who has consented to speak the way the establishment wants to be spoken of. I have spoken to many different friends of mine, and these are intelligent people that believe this whole relationship that she has with Travis Kelsey is not real, that they're not really a couple, that this is done to prop up both of their careers. A friend of mine said, ah, yeah, you think it's a coincidence? He starts doing these commercials for Pfizer, trying to get everyone to get vaccinated, and all of a sudden he's the biggest star in the world because of his relationship with Taylor Swift? No, 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 no. I have to tell you... um, I'm skeptical of everything, right? I, I think it's appropriate to be cynical of everything. I I don't think there's anything to this. You know, one one person, um, Laura Loomer, who I've invited on this program to address this, um, said the Democrats' Taylor Swift election interference psyop is happening in the open. Mike Crispy, who, who I know, who's a, uh, a talk show host and a podcaster, said... The NFL is totally rigged for the Kansas City Chiefs, all to spread Democrat propaganda. Calling it now, Kansas City wins, goes to the Super Bowl, Swift comes out at the halftime show and endorses Joe Biden with Kelsey at midfield. It's all been an op since day one. I have to tell you, now, first of all, there's nothing new about getting celebrities to try and campaign for you. Nothing. Nothing. I mean, Jack Kennedy got Frank Sinatra and the Rat Pack to campaign for him. Um, Ronald Reagan campaigned back when he was just known as an actor for Barry Goldwater in 1964. It's not unusual to have prominent celebrities campaign for people. It's not. And if you're the politician, you want those celebrities that have massive crossover appeal campaigning for you. But for these folks to actually suggest, and I know Mike Crispy, I have a tough time believing that he actually believes this. But for these folks to actually suggest that the Super Bowl is somehow rigged to benefit Taylor Swift, 
Honestly, and I know we had a very interesting guy on this show not long ago who basically was saying that all sports is rigged. I have a tough time believing that. I mean, we're not talking about WrestleMania here where the outcomes are predetermined. I have to believe that both the 49ers and the Chiefs are going to do whatever they can to try and win this Super Bowl. I, I don't think Taylor Swift has anything to do with it. I um, And as far as the fact that uh, Pfizer got Travis Kelsey to be their spokesperson to get people to get vaccinated... There's nothing new about that. Elvis was a spokesman for getting people vaccinated back in the 1950s. This is not unusual, and yet the level of craziness that people are going to to uh, either twist themselves into pretzels to explain the nature of the Taylor Swift conspiracy theory, it's just staggering. I look, I saw what happened to both Al Michaels and uh, and others. And I've been on record as saying I've got nothing but respect for Taylor Swift. My wife uh, listens to her music. My son listens to her music from time to time. Uh, I've got nothing against her. But I just honestly think that the people that think this is some sort of massive conspiracy theory, I, I think it's I think it's insane, honestly. Uh, I would love to hear from you and. In a judgment-free manner, we will give you the opportunity to make your case. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. There's apparently a podcast called The Benny Show that uh, I was heretofore unfamiliar with, but um, this is what they're talking about on The the Benny Show. This is what I think is going to happen. There's going to be like some type of proposal at the after the Super Bowl is rigged for the Chiefs. And then the two of these people... But, so let's talk about that, right? What are we saying when it's rigged for the Chiefs? Are the 49ers not going to try to win? Are the officials, the referees, going to give the Chiefs more of the borderline calls on holding and on offsides and false start because of Taylor Swift? I, I, I think that's crazy. Absolutely crazy, but back to the Benny show. And then the two of these people become, it's like, reach like crazy levels of absolute fame, and then they use that in order to try and save Joe Biden. There you have it. And now you know the rest of the story. I uh, Look, she may endorse Joe Biden. I, I think she may already have. Um, I don't know if she explicitly said I'm endorsing Joe Biden, but a lot of young people in this country don't like Donald Trump. I mean, uh, I think Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is the most popular candidate among um, young people. But then I think it's Biden, right? I mean, young folks don't like Trump. Uh, not all of them, but many of them. So uh, Taylor Swift is a younger woman. I, I don't know how old she is. I think she's uh, I think she's around 30. But it's not exactly going out on a limb in saying that she would be for Joe Biden, or at least anti-Donald Trump. She's 34. I just looked that up. Not old enough to run for president herself, which is why I guess, you know, she's supporting Biden this time around. So then she can run in four years and get elected. See, it's all part of the plan. It's all part of Swiftology. But this effort to Swift boat her, I think, is um, is so strange. And the amount of time that people are spending on this and the amount of effort I find just staggering. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. David, is the Super Bowl rigged? Uh, should people even bother watching, or are the Chiefs just going to win because of Taylor Swift? 
of course, this is ridiculous. Listen, what is really behind this, and you can ask Brian Kilmeade about it because he's been saying a lot of this nonsense as well. This is about bullying Taylor Swift, who as an American citizen has a right to endorse anybody she pleases. This is about bullying her into not making an endorsement because she is a President Biden supporter. She has indicated that even though she hasn't come out and made a formal endorsement yet. And what really bothers me about this, Frank, is that, you know, I think it's jealousy, too, because all and I say you guys, I don't mean you personally, but all Republicans have is Ted Nugent and Kid Rock. OK, we have Taylor Swift. OK, she's an A-lister. You guys have got Z-listers. OK, so it's jealousy and it's bullying. And what worries me is there's a lot of nuts out there who listen to this stuff, who believe it. And they could be putting Taylor Swift in danger. Thank God she's got enough money to afford good security. Because if she was a regular person like you or I, I would be worried. Because well, there's I, a lot of yeah, nuts I mean, out there. What about that guy that just decapitated his father? Okay, yeah, well, that's There are people out terrible. there who listen to this stuff who are crazy. All right? And they could be gunning for Taylor Swift and this football player. You know, that's the worst part. Don't put people in danger unnecessarily with ridiculous conspiracy theories. And all of these people, including Brian Kilmeade, should be ashamed of themselves. Well, first of all, I, I don't think Brian should be ashamed of himself for this. We'll, we'll ask him how ashamed of himself he is when he comes up on in about 15 minutes. I just... Um... I don't. Uh, I, I don't buy it. I mean, for starters, you know, you talk about uh, comparing the security of Taylor Swift versus regular people. Regular people don't have the ability to command audiences the way Taylor Swift does. So, I mean, it's kind of like my conversation with Helena Kelly about Charles Dickens. This is what comes with the territory of being a larger-than-life celebrity. There's a lot of a scrutiny of you. There's a lot of expectations. What What I don't understand is people thinking that the game is rigged. Because of Taylor Swift. I mean, to me, it's just crazy. I just don't get it at all. Who, wh what is the rigging? That's what I don't understand. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, Gnome Laden and Brian Kilmeade coming up shortly. I am going to ask Brian about the uh, the Super Bowl. And if time permits, I'll ask him about this, this uh, Taylor Swift theory as well. Um, and then a lot going on in Congress. I don't know if you saw yesterday, very interesting hearing with the heads of these social media companies testifying before the U.S. Senate. And uh, I thought the senators really gave it to them in terms of the damaging content that is on a lot of these social media platforms, specifically content that's damaging towards young people. And they really, uh, they really gave it to them six ways from Sunday. For instance, here was Josh Hawley uh, going at it with uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Meta, which owns Facebook. So you didn't oh, take any action. You didn't that's take any true, action. Senator. You didn't fire anybody. You haven't that's compensated a single not, victim. Let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. There's families of victims here today. Have you apologized to the victims? Would you like to do so now? Well, they're here. You're on national television. Would you like now to apologize to the victims who have been harmed by your product? Show them the pictures. Would you like to apologize for what you've done to these good people? And this is why we invested so much and are going to continue doing these streaming efforts to, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. 
You know, why, Mr. Zuckerberg, why should your company not be sued for this? Why is it that you can claim you hide behind a liability shield? You can't be held accountable. Shouldn't so we'll get into it with Brian Kilmeade uh, coming up in just a bit. 800-848-9222. Mike is in Pennsylvania. Hi, Mike. How you doing, Frank? Listen, this thing has been set up with the Democratic Party since Obama, even before that. You used to be 21 years old. You had a vote. You were supposed to be able to vote. 21. Right. They changed they that 50 years ago. Right. 18, 18 was great because... Okay, if you had to go fight in the war, yeah, you should be able to. They're even pushing for 16, though. But here's the thing. When Obama got up and he said that you could stay on your parents' medical benefits until you're 26 years old, they were setting the president to make people, okay, just just be lazy. And who, and who else are you going to vote for? The guy who's going to just give you everything. And here's Taylor Swift, the, the new girl on the block that I don't know what they see about her music. You know, she's not even a she's not even a Gracie Slick. Never mind. Uh, you know, I mean, she, she it's just horrible, horrible talent that you see out there now. There's no talent, and and they just it's just media hype and all. And yeah, she's gonna. Uh, uh, they don't like Donald Trump because Donald Trump tells it the way it is. Well, I mean, like, Trump, I, I, it's just I, like again, Reagan and all. I'm not. Well, I don't think. It, I, you know, I don't think. Um, you know that that's necessarily the case. But how, what does that have to do with the Super Bowl being rigged? Do you really think they've rigged it to make it so that the Chiefs well, will win no, because no, of Taylor no, Swift? No, no, no. So you no, no, you agree no, that's crazy? Think, no, that, that it's crazy. Can can refs or whatever lean here or there? Can the uh, is the media just gonna hype them and hype them and hype them and? and that's when you love. That's when you love. When like uh, a forty nine, it comes in and just just creams them and just you know. If you're a guy like me, you so know Mike, what I mean? so Mike, you don't think I, I just, you don't think the you don't think the Super Bowl was fixed. Nah, that's too much. Nah, these, the other guys got too okay. much. Okay, all right, okay. Well, that. I think that, I think you we're know? on the same same page then on that one. I, the, see, I, I can understand uh, people thinking, oh, Taylor Swift's going to endorse Joe Biden because you know she doesn't like Donald Trump. I get it, right? What I don't get is these people saying, oh, let me guess, the Chiefs are going to win. They're going to make it sure that the Chiefs win because it's all rigged. And then there's going to be a proposal. And then while they're walking down the aisle, she's going to turn to everybody and say, not I do, but I endorse Joe Biden. I mean, to me, it's ridiculous. And honestly, who cares? Are there really that many I mean, I think most of Taylor Swift's fan base, I know she has a lot of fans, I mean, but I think most of her fan base are young people that are overwhelmingly not going to vote for Trump anyway. So I don't know how much of a difference that it makes. I don't know of a single person, and I have a wide social group, that is sitting home saying, you know, I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden Unless Taylor Swift endorses him. If Taylor Swift endorses him, then I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. I mean, to me, it's just ridiculous. And it's insulting to the intelligence of any voter or any Taylor Swift fan. 800-84, as I said, my wife's a Taylor Swift fan. And uh, my friend Brian Silverstein, we even went to one of her her, uh, concerts. And my friend Bill Smith. I don't know uh, what direction any of those three people are going to vote. But I can tell you, all three of them, my wife, Brian Silverstein, Bill Smith, not one of them is going to have their view changed 
of who they're going to vote for because of Taylor Swift. But even if they did, that still doesn't make it a Pentagon psyop or make the Super Bowl rigged. Noam Layden joins us next and Brian Kilmeade. Those of you that are calling, I, I will try and get to you shortly. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. talk with Brian Kilmeade in a moment. Uh, find out if he thinks uh, Taylor Swift has rigged the Super Bowl. Uh, but first, you need to be informed, and we have found just the man to do it. Stand by for the other side of Midnight's News. From New York City, the other side of and its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. Hello, Noam. Good morning, Frank. It's been a while since we talked about cruise ship and the cruise ship industry mm. and how they can sometimes turn into a hospital on the ocean. But we're watching this take place. On the Queen Victoria, there's 1,800 passengers on the ship. It is one of these incredibly long cruises. They do this a lot of time this uh, time of year where they'll get the cruise ships in the wintertime from uh, the Florida area to the U.K., and they're cheaper prices. It tends to be a lot of senior citizens that have this sure. time. So this is a, like one, a 107 day cruise. They're at the initial part 107 of the cruise. 107 days? Yeah. My goodness. Yeah, I, I go, I'd go out of my mind. But, you know, for some people, this is what they want the world voyage. So they're in the Florida portion of their trip. And a hundred, more than 100 people have come down with this uh, viral flu where uh, they have just these awful symptoms that I don't want to go into, but like vomiting and that kind of thing. And we've seen this so many times before where, you know, you're on this tight quarters of a cruise ship. There's not a whole lot that they can do. The CDC is now involved. They want to board the ship to see exactly what's going on. The cruise line says, we're responding to this. They're doing everything that they normally would do, things they did during COVID, extra cleaning areas, you know, telling you not to touch certain points of the ship that might uh, actually get you ill. But here we are again, 116 people aboard this ship have this illness. They think 
uh, it's only going to rise in the next couple of days. There are a couple opportunities where people can get off the ship if they don't want to get sick. Mm. We'll have to see if they take that opportunity because they make a lot of stops along the way. The next stop, I think, is tomorrow uh, in the Florida area, and then they start making that cruise towards the U.K., I don't know how many people will get off. In the past, people haven't because they said, I paid a lot of money for this and I want to stay on the cruise ship. I have to think with a voyage that lengthy where you're on a ship with, uh, you know, with all the same people. I mean, obviously, there's fresh air that you can get and stuff. But I have to think that your chances are pretty good of catching whatever somebody on that ship has. Well, you have communal. We said it's 1,800 passengers. Yeah, communal dining room, you know, the whole work. So Hmm. are you a cruise guy? I've never been on a cruise. Oh, have never? You? No, have you? See, I've been on a few. I think they're okay. My wife wasn't crazy about it. Um, I think it's nice. You know, I went on one a few years ago with a group of friends, and to me, that's a fun way to do it. If you're going with family or right. friends, a group of people, not for 107 days. No. Five days? Yeah. Six days? Three days? You can deal with that. Yeah. Right. I went to a conservative Christian high school. You went to public school, correct? Yes. So... I'm sort of shocked by the story out of Florida. I tried to get in touch with this woman. Her name is Michelle Klein. She sends her kids to the Liberty Christian Preparatory School in Tavares, Florida. And she has an only a fans account where she shows off her body. And she's I went online to see what she looked like. Only in the matter of uh, right, journalism. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And she's an attractive woman. And on the back of her car, she advertises her OnlyFans account. It's a big bumper sticker, essentially. It's on her window. And so she had been dropping her kids off at the school, at the front area of the school, for a couple weeks. And then parents started to notice this OnlyFans decal that she had on the back of her car, and they started to complain. And so now the school went up to her, and they said, we're not going to kick you out of school because it's your kids that go here, and we like your kids. But you can no longer drop them off in the driveway. So now you have to dr- go across the street to the parking lot. It's a store or something, and walk them across the street. So she's upset because she says, oh, it's extra 10 minutes. I have to cross the street with them. And now this story's gotten bigger. So students on the campus of this school have seen this decal, and a student at the school was caught at school, looking at her OnlyFans account, and he's been suspended. So now some parents are saying, wait a minute, if we're a conservative Christian school, why are we letting a family that is making, by the way, she has makes about $20,000 a month off oh of this account. Goodness. Yeah, wow. it's, it's a lot of money. It pays for the school. Yeah. She says, I want my kids to get a good Christian education, and I realize that people will laugh because they'll say I'm doing something that's not very Christian, but I, this is the way I'm making money. Um, you know, this is, this is what it is. So, but there are now parents who are saying they should kick the entire family out of the school. So I reached out to the school yesterday. No comment from the school. Oh, I bet. I reached out to Michelle Klein. She says, you know what? I don't want to talk to the press because she says she's been unfairly portrayed. So I'm not interested. I said I was going to give her a fair hearing. She didn't want to do that. Now the school community is going to decide if they're going to kick her out for the job that she does. It's not on campus. Mm. uh, But they say, the parents say, hey, this is not within the teachings of our school. How could you let a parent? And now everybody in the school, of course, knows exactly what she does. There are other um, social media influencers, by the way, at the school. There is a mom, another mom there who's a TikTok influencer who has 220,000 followers. But she does like family advice. It's not sexual at all. I, I don't understand what the basis would be to kick them out. I mean, especially the kids. The kids aren't on OnlyFans. Yep. They say she's caused too much of an uproar. 
the one thing she did say when I asked her, she said she wasn't going to take that decal off because she says that's part of her gig is that people see it and then they go check it out. And a lot of times they'll sign on. Mm. That's how she's been able to build, build her base on OnlyFans. So for now, the school not making any comment. The parents very outspoken. They want the Klein family gone from the school. By the way, roundly the teachers have said the kids are great. No problem at all. Uh, I will tell you, on her OnlyFans account, it's not just her showing off her body, mm-hmm. which is attractive, but it is her also interacting with her husband. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I guess I can understand that. So as of now, she's banned from the pickup area, Yeah, that's apparently. the only thing. She's only banned from the parking lot. She can't pull into the parking lot. She has to park across the street, walk across her, par- her kids, which she says is a busy street to get there. But she said, I'm okay with that because I think this is a great school and I want my my kids to get a Christian education. Well, I mean, uh, good for her. But um, I'm, I'm looking, obviously, the New York Post, which will do anything for clicks. There, uh, th- There's tons of photos of her in the New York Post version of, <laughs> of this article. Uh, and she's obviously very pretty and very fit, but she's got way too many tattoos. I wouldn't pay... You know, right. I'm not into the tattoo thing. It's no, I'm just, right there with you, but you to know. each his own. You know, exactly. everybody's whatever right. attracts you is right. attracts you. Exactly. Yeah. Well, best of luck to Michelle Klein and her and her family. Thank you, Noam. And now you know the rest of the story. I'll tell you who would make a bundle on OnlyFans, and that is uh, a best-selling author and historian who is uh, one of the nation's foremost political commentators, and that is Brian Kilmeade. Uh, He is the co-anchor of Fox & Friends and a nationally syndicated radio talk show host. Brian, uh, you've you've never done the OnlyFans thing, right? I don't, you know, I, um, I'm embarrassed to say this. I know people think of me uh, differently now, but I don't even get it. What is it? Yeah, it, basically it's a subscription model to look at photos, as I understand, of of whatever. And initially it started out as something for artists, but, you know, like anything on the Internet, pretty soon it becomes um, used for something that's salacious. But you're, you're too busy to, you know, have an OnlyFans account, I think. So Thank you. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Hey, Brian, a lot I want to pick your brain on. What's going on with uh, the negotiations that uh, that have been ongoing between the congressional Republicans and the Biden administration over the border? The buzz a couple of days ago was President Trump was sort of whispering into the ears of uh, Senate Republicans. And then Trump came right out and said, yeah, this is a bad deal. I don't want the congressional Republicans going along with it. Some people are saying this is similar to, um, you know, what Nixon did in prolonging the Vietnam War before he got elected. Some people have even said it's similar to Reagan in 1980 with the Iranian hostage crisis. Um, how do you view the situation, Brian? What's going on? What are you hearing? How about this? Can we wait for it to come out first before we know if it's a bad deal or not? I know we have a rough outline. We have three interviews from the weekend. I've talked to Senator Langford offline, but it's I, I've never seen anything like it. It's like you and I saying, wasn't that a bad Super Bowl? No, right. I don't know. It hasn't been played yet. It's next week. Uh, sorry, Frank. It's next week. I can't really comment. You know, so you don't like the matchup, okay. You maybe maybe you, you feel as though it's a blowout, maybe you feel the wrong team won the championship game. All right. That's speculation. But everything is speculation. But um I in in this is the one thing I have for critics that I can't dispute. They have no belief that Joe Biden will implement anything 
that is in his hands that will allow him to clamp down on the border with any significance. He lost me when he said, again, screaming through a helicopter instead of sitting down in an interview or addressing the press with a normal, like we deserve to be addressed. You don't even have to take questions, but don't do it in front of a chopper. He comes out and he says, give me the tools. Give me the tools to shut the border down. When he said that, now, Johnson, I'm going to run this clip today. He said, you know, I've told him flat out you have the tools. You don't need us. You could do whatever you want. Here it is. He goes, Johnson's a big-time lawyer. He goes, I'm going to give you the five or six things. And he pretended as if the president really didn't know this. And he told it to him. He said, you could do the remain in Mexico. You could uh, you change the asylum rules right now. People have to have uh, hard-written proof to say that they are under a threat, that their family's under threat, that they have another choice. If not, they have to prove they can't go to another side of their own country. So these things could all be done without legislation. You need it so presidents can't play within it, but they say there's too much discretion in it. It's going to be interesting to see where things go. I think given the politics, though, it's pretty likely there's not going to be a border deal before the election. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, even though it's not out yet, uh, you know, we haven't even seen it yet, and it might pass the Senate. I don't know how many Mitt Romneys are out there mm-hmm. who thrive on just doing whatever Donald Trump doesn't want him to do. So if there are 10 Mitt Romneys, it's going to end up at the House. But there's a lot of Republicans, even the ones that want to sign off on it, let's say Tom Tillis. They said, I'm not going to do that to the House. I am not going to put it in the Speaker's lap to have it dead on arrival and make it look like the Republican-run House is the one who killed border reform and give that. So we might not, you know, they might not give him the 60 but it's up to Schumer to put it up for a vote. Schumer was just going to just put it in there. What I just want them to spin out Ukraine aid and uh, Israel aid on its own, get some votes on that. I do not want uh, Ukraine to lose. I don't want Israel without weapons. So can we please get them what they need? Taiwan paid for this stuff. Can they just deliver it, please? But at this point, is there any way that a Ukraine aid deal passes without either tying it to Israel aid or the border? Well, it passed the, I would think there's no question it passes the Senate. You know, it, with the, you know, Speaker Johnson has said flat out, you know, we've got to get Ukrainians the aid. He's just trying to do it politically. Now, he's doing this tax thing against the will of the, uh, the wild right of, of yeah. Matt Gates and company. He's doing that anyway. So my, my sense is he knows it's going to be on his baseball card if Ukraine just runs out of weapons. And, you know, and Hungary is the country that is holding out aid from going from the European Union because they decide, yeah, I kind of like Putin. I don't really know the guys over in in Ukraine. So I think I'll just hold up 27 other nations. So politics and war don't mix. Uh, Nikki Haley is making her case to folks in South Carolina, to Nevada, even though she's not in a position to win any delegates because of the unique situation there, and really all over the country, that she's the most electable candidate uh, to beat Biden. A lot of folks on the Republican side of the ledger are saying this race is over. Time to coalesce around Trump. I think it was Quinnipiac that just came out with a poll which shows Biden leading uh, Trump in a head-to-head matchup, but when third-party candidates are included... Then uh, Trump enters out Biden, and apparently the big problem for uh, for Trump in a Biden matchup is the uh, the female vote. Uh, where do you see the presidential race at this point, Brian? Both the Republican primary, such as it is, and the general election. All right. So first off, if we're going to take Quinnipiac, we have to take the Bloomberg Morning Consult poll, 
And I looked at that, came out yesterday. North Carolina, Trump by 10. Nevada, Trump by 8. Georgia, Trump by 8. Wisconsin, Trump by 5. Michigan, Trump by 5. Pennsylvania, Trump by 3. And Arizona, same thing. Now, what what you're just referring to is surprising. I mean, I'm looking at one of the worst months ever for Joe Biden between the border, between the Middle East unrest, between the nonstop militia attacks on our people, the deaths of three of our guys coming back from Dover, two, two women too, coming back from two of which are women, coming back to Dover today. And it says he beats uh, uh, Trump 50 to 44, put a third party in there, and it's still tr- Biden over Trump 39-37, RFK 14, Cornell West 3, Jill Stein 2. Haley uh, beats Biden by 547-42. With a third party, it is Biden beating Haley. So that's 36-29. Now, they always lean left, Quinnipiac. I'm not saying they're the bastion. Uh, I mean, Nostra Thomas is not on the staff. But I I was surprised to see that that poll. Uh, Republican primary over? You know, they say it is. Nikki Haley doesn't think it is. She has enough money to fight on. What she has to do is she's trailing between 20 and 30 points in South Carolina. But she knows everybody. And she said, and I didn't look this up to verify, but she's not really somebody who makes things up. When she left to go join the Trump administration, she had 76 percent approval rating. So can she go into the uh, and can she go wake up her supporters and can she get within striking distance of Trump? Now, she gains 20, 30 points in these last, I know she's got four weeks. It's a long time. If she gains that, man, I mean, it's going to be hard dropping out before Super Tuesday, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Hey, um, one of the things that everybody's been talking about is uh, the role that Taylor Swift is playing, not only in the presidential election, but the Super Bowl. Uh, different commentators have raised the prospect that this is all somehow rigged. Uh, even Vivek Ramaswamy on, on Twitter basically said, uh, you know, let me guess who's going to win the Super Bowl. And it, they sort of implied that uh, Taylor Swift is going to endorse Biden in the aftermath of a Chiefs win. Tell me how you view the confluence of those three events, Taylor Swift and this relationship with Travis Kelsey, the Super Bowl and the presidential election. I think it's very akin to Oprah. A lot of people were saying, what's the big deal? She's a talk show host. She's not a politician. You know, who cares? I think she helped Barack Obama. Is there any question she didn't? You know, she did not help Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams failed. So maybe she could, uh, Nikki, uh, Taylor Swift has got this popularity to get people to vote. Evidently, they say that she got 30 with the day that she tweeted out, uh, you know, I support Joe Biden in 2020. They got 30,000 new voter registrations. And she's even more powerful today. So I think it would be insane for her to do that again. I mean, do you want her to be Barbara Streisand? Does anyone, career manager, look at this and say, let's do what Bette Midler did. That really worked out good for her. Let's do what Cher did when she was putting out those insane tweets about Trump. I mean, why does that? Why would you do that? What do do you get Rob Reiner to like you more? You know, so I I don't even get it. Why why anybody? She's so smart. Why would she do it again? I mean, I almost forgot that she tweeted and she came out against Michelle Bachman in that Senate race and went with the Democratic mayor, Phil Bredson. But guess what? Michelle Bachman still not. Yeah. Um, Blackburn. Sorry. Right. 
Uh, Marsha she still Blackburn. won in Tennessee. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, in, yeah ter- in terms of, uh, you know, what we're seeing in, um, you know, in, in Congress, very interesting day with respect to the Senate grilling these uh, social media heads yesterday. They really put them through the ringer. Uh, Lindsey Graham let the uh, social media companies have it, for instance. Mr. Zuckerberg. Oh, yeah. You and the companies before us, I know you don't mean t- it to be so, but you have blood on your hands. You have a product. <laughs> You have a product that's killing people. When we had cigarettes killing people, we did some about it, maybe not enough. You're going to talk about guns? We have the ATF. Nothing here. There's not a damn thing anybody can do about it. You can't be sued. Now, Senator Blumenthal and Blackburn, who've been like the dynamic duo here, have found emails from your company where they warned you about this stuff. And you decided not to hire 45 people that could do a better job of policing this. Brian, is uh, Lindsey Graham and the others going a little too far comparing Facebook to guns and cigarettes? No, I don't think so. I I, I don't. I mean, and this is bipartisan, by the way. Eric Adams has been saying the same thing in New York as well. Yeah, what I don't understand, yeah, everyone's making a move on this, and obviously the TikTok guy got special scrutiny, and he was asked again, are your kids on TikTok? And he said no. And they go, why? Because Singapore doesn't allow it. My kids live in Singapore. Why don't they allow it in China, in Singapore? Why don't most uh, executives in Silicon Valley let their kids have this? They created it. They keep kids addicted to it. Everyone's like, well, be a good parent. Take your phone away. Don't give your kid a phone. Put the pressure on the parents and other things, you know, where you don't want your kids, you know, not being unable to communicate. You don't want your kids feeling left out, Uh, even though I know people listening to me right now just say say it's a hard yes or a hard no. It's a lot different when you get in there and your your kid doesn't know where the parties are, doesn't have the communication, doesn't – it's a lot harder. Having said that, if there were controls on it, then that would certainly help, and they're dragging their feet. And what I don't understand – is why, if you have Democrat and Republican support on this, and then you have it in the House, why don't you draw up something that passes? It doesn't make any sense to me. I love that they brought the only thing different. People have said to me, too, yesterday, well, what's the big deal? They, they came in again, and they got just skewered, but still go back and do nothing. The thing that was different is the families of the victims. Mm-hmm. So these guys couldn't do their swag or their arrogance and look at these older men and women and say, you don't even understand my business. They go, well, we understand the, the, ripple, the ramifications of your business. Even though I can't create what you did, I can certainly feel the wrath of what you've done. So why don't you? It's been long enough since we've had the Internet. So why can't we do something? What is the holdup? And these guys were so telling. Would any of you? Sign on to any of this legislation before you uh, that we have brought forward. Not one would sign up for it. It's going to be interesting to see where that goes. It seems like in uh, a very polarized Washington, that's one of the few areas where there is some bipartisan consensus. I wouldn't be surprised uh, to see some legislation on this uh, because I don't know that there's a partisan divide, but there certainly seems to be a bit of a generational divide amongst the public. Hey, uh, Brian, it's always a treat talking with you. Thank you, my friend. Uh, go get him, Frank. Stay uh, within yourself. Brian Kilmeade, uh, check out, if you haven't seen his new book yet, if you haven't read his new book, Teddy and Booker T. It's uh, terrific. Also catch him on Fox and Friends and on his own nationally syndicated radio program. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. 
The Other Side of Midnight. singing The Other Side of Midnight. Hey, would you like to be heard for 15 seconds? Now's your opportunity. 800-848-9222. The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Mike! Morning, Frank. I kept 20,000 monkeys in the basement, not for medical research, just for fun. The only time they left a mess was after a Planet of the Apes movie night. Very messy. Neil. One year ago today, I had my cancer surgery. Thank you, Dr. Karen Nicholas, for a second chance at life. Timothy. Consider this. Not in 6,000 years has the Bible, the Word of God, ever been debunked. Read the Bible, know the truth. John. Guerrilla journalist James O'Keefe of O'KeefeMediaGroup.com is fighting to save America. Please support O'KeefeMediaGroup.com. 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 Joe. Morag. Ray. Blue Oyster Colt from Long Island, New York. They're not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That is a joke. Buck Dharma is a great guitar player. They should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Thank you. Greg. This is a moron. This is a moron. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Rusty. Go ahead, Rusty. Oh, yeah. Border reform. We had border reform before these morons put this piece of garbage in the office. Rocco. A shed of tools cannot help Biden in the shape he is. Let me thank everyone who's reached out in your care and concern. I appreciate it. Thank you, Frank. All right. That slams the lid on things for today. For anybody else we didn't get to, we'll do it again tomorrow, God willing. A little ask Frank anything tomorrow and uh, a lot of other fun stories that you have missed elsewhere. Frank Moreno, good day. Hemorrhoids can be a real pain in the butt, causing anal itching and burning and irritation. Get fast relief with all natural, doctor-developed and tested Anacool. Buy Anacool, A-N-A-C-O-O-L, on Amazon right now and save 15% with code WABC2024.